Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, it's Sophia. Welcome back to Work in Progress. So it's been 20 years since the horrific events of 9-11, a day that has been imprinted into the memory of everyone who lived through it and a very clear turning point for our collective global history. The post 9-11 world is a different one than the pre 9-11 world, and we find ourselves in it today. To look back on the events of that day and how they affected our history, our culture, and most importantly, our people, we have brought in two phenomenal guests to do a special episode, The Justice That It Deserves civil rights leader and award-winning documentarian Valerie Carr, and filmmaker and musician Delaney Kaleo. From her family farm in California as a descendant of Sikh Indian immigrants, to becoming a world-renowned voice in spirituality and socio-political activism, Valerie has helmed documentaries focusing on a slew of issues that matter to all of us. Her 9-11 documentary, Divided We Fall, was inspired by her own personal experiences with xenophobia and hate crimes in the aftermath of September 11th and is being re-released this anniversary year with never-before-seen footage. Valerie is a phenomenal speaker who made waves with her viral Watch Night Service speech and has continued working, speaking, and educating ever since. Her experience is one of tragedies and triumphs, and her motivation to make the world a better place is truly inspiring. I am so honored that she's here and so glad to have the opportunity to let you hear about her story, her impact, and her projects in her own words. Sophia, we we have crossed paths twice before, though you probably, it was kind of a whirlwind. So we were on stage together um, at the Together Tour in Chicago. Yes. 
right before the 2016 election. <laughs> yes. Um, and it was so, so beautiful to meet you there and to hear you and to feel you. Thank you. And and then the next time we, we it was very brief, but we passed each other in the green room um, about to speak with Rain and Reza for a metaphysical milkshake. <laughs> yes. Oh, so and that was all pre-pandemic. So it's actually really beautiful to, you know, be able to have a conversation with you now with so much that's happened. So yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming today. I, you know, I'm I'm such an enormous fan of yours. And I think that that first year at Together Tour, you know, I, I just came on and and did a quick um, you know, sort of fireside chat with Glennon. I I hadn't done the full tour yet. Mm. And um, I was so sort of, it was such an out-of-body experience, you know, just getting up in front of all those people. And I remember being like, oh, wow, she's here. Oh, wow. She, oh, wow. This is really cool. <laughs> um, but I didn't really, you know, I didn't get to hang with everybody. So I'm I'm so glad we get to have this time now. Well, I, you know, I even like, I'm like, I poured myself a cup of tea. Like, I get to sit with you. I have a giant jar of iced coffee. <laughs> Same. <laughs> and and uh and you got engaged this summer. Congratulations. Yeah. It's so <laughs> it's so funny. I I think I didn't even realize there's a couple of layers to it. I I've always really guarded my personal life because my career requires so much um public presence and also the the sort of unfortunate side effect of um you know, public examination or, or being publicly picked apart. So I've really, uh, you know, since I made a dumb mistake and was public about something when I was like 21, I've never <gasps> talked about my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize how, how much energy you expend to guard yourself. Yeah. Uh, until I stopped because I went, well, this is it forever. So everyone's going to find out at some point. <laughs> Um, and I didn't know how freeing that would feel and, and how much better I would start sleeping. (laughs) Mm. So that's been really kind of incredible. And then Mm. the other part of it is, and I don't, I don't know your experiences yet, but for, for us, you know, in, um, realizing what this was and, you know, beginning to plan our life and make all these big decisions together, I, I didn't think it would feel any different. It was sort of this obvious conclusion, you know, well, yeah, we're making all these plans. So of course we're eventually going to do that. And and then we got engaged and I called my best girlfriend who had also just gotten engaged. And I said to her, I said, I didn't know how fun this would be. This is so (laughs) much fun. It's so fun. It's like a sparkly moment in time. And I had no idea. (laughs) I love it. I remember feeling that, you know, when, when, when I got engaged that whole week, it felt like, well, people know to give you a week to process grief, but you also need time to process joy yeah. and to integrate that joy into your being and to let yourself feel that rush and that sparkly yeah. uplift and all of it. And and there's something about sharing sharing joy in a moment that is so dark for so many mm. that is actually life-giving. I mean, like yeah. between like the birth of, of God's son, it's like, is there anything more is there anything more audacious, any anything Ugh. more bold than like new life in, in this time? And mm. and to declare love in, in a time like this too is just, I don't know, it's life-giving. I'm so glad you shared it. And mm. I'm, I'm so you. glad that 
Yeah, that you could to feel like you get to hold both. Yes, you know, like, yes, and yeah. and interestingly, you know, I, I got such an incredible piece of advice many years ago. We um, we took ten thousand students to march on Washington to call the White House and and Senate and the Congress to do something about the crisis for children in Uganda. You know, the the mm-hmm. kidnapping and exploitation of children being you know. Uh, stolen and and put into servitude as child soldiers and there was a gentleman who spoke to all of us when we held this rally and he said you have to you have to hold your joy when you're advocating because if you lose your joy in defense of people who are suffering all you're doing is increasing the world's suffering Mm. He said joy really, and I've heard this so many times since, but that joy really is an act of resistance. Yes. <laughs> and, and and you feel it. And, it. and there are moments when I feel so overwhelmed by what's happening in the world, and it's only when I tap into my joy or when I witness someone else's joy that I'm reminded what we're fighting for. Mm. Because otherwise it feels like we're just fighting and, and no one can fight forever. In my tradition in the Sikh faith, it's called Jardikala. Mm. And it, I almost feel like it, it translates as joy, but there is this deeper meaning in the way that you're describing it. It means you know, ever-rising spirits, even in darkness, mm. ever-rising joy, even in the midst of the labor. Mm-hmm. It's making me think about that wisdom of the midwife, you know, you breathe and then you push and then you breathe again Mm. and then you breathe again. She doesn't say breathe once and push. It's like in the breath and in the breath, there's dropping into the present moment and in the breath, joy is possible. So the only way to, I mean, to the father's point, like the only way to sustain longevity in any long labor is by weaving in breath and weaving in joy, Mm -hmm. you know, to return you to everything that's good and beautiful and worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. So for yeah, for me, jo- joy is the greatest act of resistance, and you know, we'll talk about it. But I I did a lot of work thinking about the core practices of love, how how we can show up with a revolutionary kind of love, and, mm. and joy is the tenth practice. It's the it's the core practice that sustains them all. Absolutely. So Absolutely. yes, yes, I'm so grateful that you have these real sources of joy in your mm. life right now, and inviting us to turn to them too. Mm. I think for a long time I didn't necessarily know how to claim my joy and I would sideline it thinking there are so many people hurting and and I'm that doesn't mean I haven't hurt doesn't mean I haven't suffered but but in the moments where I'm doing well or something good is happening you know uh, what an inappropriate sort of example of privilege to celebrate that and I and I realized that 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 sort of belief is a version of uh undue criticism. And it's mm. really, it's the function of a, of a toxic society that wants to make you feel allergic to anything but pain. Mm. And I've really found that as I've done all of this work to hold the nuance of, of the world and of society and to be able to analyze systems and to be able to stand for other people, I've realized I've had to apply some of that learning and the, and the mm. complexity of being able to hold the both and to make space mm. for that. I've had to bring that back to myself. And I, I only found my ability to do that as an individual by learning how to do it well for others 
And then mm. having enough people in my community say, you're really good at doing this for us. Why won't you do it for yourself? <laughs> and going, oh, well, this, this wasn't what I expected. <laughs> I, I'm so interested because, you know, you bring up this, this idea. We're talking about the, the motion, the ebb and flow, you know, the, the sort of wave between at the highest joy and at the lowest, you know, suffering. Uh, you make reference to breath. You talk about w- the coaching of the midwife. And it makes me think of your of your TED Talk, which I've watched so many times. Uh, I, you know, I see the views, like, I think they're up over 40 million now. And I think, well, at least seven of those are mine. <laughs> um, but you... You open your TED Talk for, you know, listeners at home who haven't seen it yet. We'll obviously link it in the in the stories and in the show notes. But you open with a prayer and you open with a story of birth. Mm-hmm. And so even you using it as a metaphor now, I think that the specific is the most universal. Your story yes. is your own, but we all can relate to the the breathing and, and the joy and, and the pushing. And and I, I wonder if you could tell people maybe who haven't seen the talk yet what the prayer is and, and what was the impetus behind opening, you know, on this of, often very academic, you know, speaker's <laughs> stage. You you really leaned into, um, into faith and into such a, a raw moment of, of the feminine and I, I was so taken aback by it in the best way when I first saw it. And I'd, I'd love to know how you'd made that decision. Mm. It was the truest way I could describe how I see the world now. Mm. It, and that revelation I, I feel like I had on that birthing table. I mean, that, that, the moment that my son was placed on my chest, I was you know shaking and sobbing from that, that rush of emotion and I was thinking, this is love. I'm falling in love, you know? And I look at my mother and she's already opening up her bag (laughs) and taking out her doll and shawl and beginning to feed me, like feeding her baby while I'm feeding mine. And that was when the revelation happened, Sophie. I looked at my mother with new eyes. You know, I, I, I realized that she had never stopped laboring for me from my birth to my son's birth. And that all this time, my mother had an arranged marriage when she was 18. You know, she and her father worked so hard so that I could live the life that she was denied. Mm -hmm. And so all this time, I thought I wasn't supposed to be like her. Like she was the wind at my back. But suddenly I said, oh, she, she has always known what I'm just beginning to realize that, you know, love is labor. It's the most durable form of labor on earth. Love is sweet labor. It's fierce. It's bloody. It's imperfect. It's life-giving. And it's a choice we make. Mm. And if love is labor, then love contains all of all of our emotions. You know, joy is the gift of love, those moments of joy, but grief is the price of love. Like mm. what it, that's what it means to love well is to let your grief in and and rage. I always thought rage was the opposite of love. Like, no, you have to harness your rage to protect mm-hmm. your babies, to protect that which you love. And and anytime you're tired, you know, wonder, that act of wonderment is what returns you to love, returns you to the labor of love. So mm-hmm. she woke me up to like the meaning of love. <laughs> and I was a lawyer. I'd never used the word love on a public stage before, but it was it was her waking me up 
that then when I returned to my work and my activism, I just saw everything differently. Mm. You know, I thought, okay, sound government is necessary, just policy is necessary, but mm-hmm. what we need in, in our country now is a shift in culture and consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, a, a new way of being and seeing each other. What if we could take the fraction of kind of love that we can practice with our, our most intimate ones and live a life so that we love others who don't look like us, even mm. our opponents. We direct that to ourselves. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be revolutionary? Doesn't that then disrupt mm. systems of inequality if we affirm human dignity above all? So yeah. my waking up to revolutionary love <laughs> happened in those moments on the birthing table. And so, of course, then all of my ways of speaking about it harnesses the, the 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 wisdom of the midwife. I come from a warrior people too, so I'll use warrior metaphor metaphors to talk about how to fight the good fight and I'll use those birthing metaphors to talk about how to how to stay in that long labor with love as your guide. Mm, I think that's so beautiful. And and you're right, people often are met with or they meet us, I suppose, in our in our big feelings with a bit of shock. Uh I in advocating in in activism i i find that people will say to me well you're so angry mm. and my response is always it's not that i'm angry it's that i'm filled with a sacred rage because you're suffering yes of course that that lights a fire in me you know and i and and i do especially when you speak of the way we need to love our opponents i really think as upset as I get when our communities, you know, and our co-communities are are suffering, I I'm so enraged when I see even the communities of my quote unquote opponents suffering because of the ways they're being misled. You know, at this moment, this pandemic, we see all of these people in these unvaccinated communities dying. Because they have been lied to about basic medical science mm. by people who are vaccinated themselves. You know, these pundits on these news shows. And it, it makes me feel crazy because I think you are doing harm for profit. So mm. even these people who meet me with anger, even these people who throw insults my way are being harmed by someone. And I'm upset about that. Mm. And I... I'm so inspired by your work because you remind all of us to lean into that kind of deeply, I don't simply want to say just maternal, but in the metaphors we're using, you know, (laughs) this, this familial defense of one another. And I am curious how your faith informed that before, and you certainly talk about this sort of revelatory moment on the table, and and how it informs your activism now. You asked about my grandfather's prayer mm. that my mother whispered in my ear on the birthing table. The hot winds cannot touch you. The hot winds cannot touch you, my love. You are shielded. Mm. I can remember that prayer whispered by my grandfather before going to sleep at night. <laughs> It went and seeped into my dreams, Mm. driving to school in the mornings. We recited it all the time. And, you know, my my grandfather helped raise me and and my brother. We lived on the farmland that my family had farmed for more than a century. So 
I grew up among orchards and next to cows and horses and plums and peaches and strawberry fields on all sides in California Central Valley. So the the humming of these prayers and this feeling of being so connected to my Sikh tradition was completely in line with feeling so deeply connected to the earth and the land and this country. And it wasn't until, you know, my first racial slur at school, I was six years old when I heard the words, get up, you black dog. When I ran home to my grandfather, he didn't, you know, give me a lesson or tell me to stop crying. He just scooped me up in his arms and he recited this prayer and he would tell me stories. (laughs) as stories of our Sikh ancestors. And my favorite story was always the story of Guru Nanak, the founder of the Sikh faith. He was so distraught by the violence around him that this was 550 years ago in North India that he disappeared by a river for three days. He sat in perfect contemplation. And on the third day, he had a revelation. Nako Hindu, Nako Musliman. There is no Hindu. There is no Muslim. Beneath all these husks and labels, we are one. Ikkom God. He began singing the song of oneness. And the song of oneness was really a song of love. Nako Betty Nehi Bagana, I see no enemy, I see no stranger. He called us to look upon the face of anyone and say, You are a part of me, I do not yet know. Mm. <laughs> My grandfather would say, But love, <laughs> love is dangerous business. Because if I see you as a part of me that I do not yet know, if I see you as my sister, my my brother, my sibling, that I must fight for you if you are in harm's way. So Nanak said, if you wish to play the game of love with me, step forth with your head on your palm. And six soon became known as warriors. Santh Sapahi, sage warriors. The sage loves, the warrior mm. fights. It's a path of revolutionary love. And so by this time I would stop crying and my grandfather would look down and I, you know, I'm a little girl with, with two long braids. And he would say, my dear, don't abandon your post. <laughs> he saw me as a warrior. Mm. And really, truly, all these years later, I feel like my whole life has been this beautiful attempt to keep the promise I made to my grandfather. Mm, to not abandon your post. I, I would love to, to get a little educational for a moment, um, if that's okay. Because in hearing about your faith, your experience, the the way that your family was in relationship to each other and the earth. I want to get really into the the beauty of it all. And I, I'm also aware that there are probably people listening who are going, what what are they talking about? You know, <laughs> not everyone who knows uh, what we're speaking of when we talk about your faith, when you say, you know, you grew up in a household of sick faith. A lot of people um you know, myself until I was properly educated, even mispronounce uh, the word. Many of us think it's Sikh. Many people don't really know the difference to your point. And, and, you know, you speak about this in your, your TED talk that I referenced in so many other spaces. People kind of jumble you know, this whole group of people together and go, I don't really know the difference, you know, between the Sikhs and the Muslims and they, we're saying it wrong and we we really don't know. So I, I, I wonder if you could just give people a little bit of an overview or a, a, a small lesson so that, you know, a, a whole group of people who maybe depending on the community we live in, we've never interacted with, is, isn't so nebulous in our understanding. 
Of course. And you don't have to feel bad because you could go through all of elementary school, high school, college, even graduate school. You know, when I was at Harvard Divinity School, there wasn't a single class on the Sikh faith. Wow. So there's very there are very little resources for people to understand our community unless it's through story. So I'm glad you're asking me now. Um, so the, the Sikh faith is one of the great organized world religions. It's one of the youngest. It's 550 years old. It originated in India. What is now Pakistan and India was all South Asia when Guru Nanak lived there and first had his revelation 550 years ago. When Guru Nanak had his awakening and began to sing the song of oneness, he was really, truly, Sophia, he was joining a long list of spiritual teachers, indigenous visionaries who have made this call to love without limit through the centuries. <laughs> you know, he, you know, to be able to to um, expand the human heart, to say, you are part of me and I am part of you. That revelation, what was different about Nanak is that it struck him in a state of vismad or wonderment. So he didn't necessarily give commandments or issue stories, he began to sing poetry. And that poetry set to song became our sacred scripture. And those who followed Nanak became known as Sikhs, S-I-K-H. And to be a Sikh simply means to learn. Mm. <laughs> it's to forever be a disciple, a student of truth, to learn our whole lives. So when we gather together to pray, we actually close our eyes and recite the, the devotional poetry, praising the divine around us and within us. The first six who came to the United States came in at the turn of the century, in the early 1900s. Mm. My father's father was one of them. He sailed by steamship from India to America in 1913. And when he first arrived, he was incarcerated at Angel Island by those who, it was a moment of white nationalist zeal where they were trying to detain, deport as many Asians as possible. Ellis Island on the East Coast was a beacon of welcome and embrace. And Angel Island on the West Coast was a, a place where they were trying to bar as many Asian immigrants as they could. Um, but my grandfather was lucky. He had a, a, a lawyer on the outside. I still am trying to find his descendants, Henry Marshall, who filed a writ of habeas corpus to release my grandfather on Christmas Eve, 1913. So he was part of those first six, first people ever from India to arrive in the United States was at that time. So we've been here for more than a century and we joined forces with other immigrant communities to fight for the right to become citizens, to have equal rights. Certainly our, the black community is really the ones, they are the ones who, whose lead we follow to be able to secure civil rights in this country. But it wasn't until September 11th that we realized just how far we had to come to be truly seen and embraced as fellow Americans on the soil. Um, but if you see, there's one last piece that's really important to know about six. We, we wear five articles of faith, many of us, to show our commitment to this love without limit. So that if you, if you need help, if you need shelter, if you need clothes on your back, you can spot a sick by our long hair. And many men and some women wrap their long hair in turbans. That's our, the most prominent article of faith is our kesh. And so um, if you see a kara, a bracelet, or a long hair wrapped in a turban, it means that we are six who have made this commitment to help you, to serve you, to love you. Mm. So beautiful. It's been really inspiring to me. As we mentioned, it's been a very tough couple of years in particular, uh, in terms of, you know, xenophobia and nationalism and um, 
community violence and and seeing some of the worst instances of that violence happen around the country, watching the sick community come into other communities in partnership to assist, to raise funds, to feed people. I <laughs> Sorry, wow, I didn't expect um I've just been really amazed because to watch a community um, that I, simply by paying attention and reading a lot, know has been uh, very wrongfully, uh, you know, abused and accused of things that have nothing to do with them, consistently defy what would be very understandable pain or skepticism and just show up for people, you know, show up after shootings at synagogues, show up um, at marches, just show up for others. It's really beautiful. Thank you, my love. Mm. And it's, um, it's interesting and not lost on me. <laughs> you know, you talk about your grandfather coming here in 1913. My grandmother came here in 1929 through Ellis Island. It was a, a beacon of welcome. Um, you know, there there was discrimination that they faced. And interestingly, my grandmother forbade my great-grandparents from speaking their mother tongue to my mom. She wouldn't allow them to speak Italian to her. She wanted them to assimilate. She wanted them to prove they were American. Mm. So it took one generation in judgment for my mother to lose the foundation of her culture. And I know that they still had a better experience than any immigrants of color. And my father didn't come to this country until... I think he said it was 1964. I can't remember because his his sister was here. Um, my my aunt Judy, who's no longer with us, came here first and was in nursing school. And my dad started coming to visit her from Canada and decided America was the place. And so he came in the 60s. And when I've talked about my family's immigration journey, but especially my father's, you know, having to help him study to get his citizenship when I was 12. Uh, people, multiple times, people have said, oh, well, that doesn't count. He just came from Canada. Mm. And I think, well, if he'd come from Mexico, you'd never say that. Mm. So, so what are you really saying? What are, what are we really getting at? You know, when I when I talk about the fact that it took 30 years for my father to become a citizen when people complain about immigration mm. and they say, well, that that's not the same. And I suppose I share all of that just to say, I wish more of us got to hear each other's stories in this way to figure out how we came here. Mm. It's not lost on me that, you know, your family has been here so much longer than mine. And you deal, I would imagine, with more viciousness than I do. And I'm, I suppose I'm just curious when he thankfully had a lawyer and thankfully got out of a, a detention facility. And, and as you said, you know, you settled in, in this land of orchards and strawberries and, and the hum of the earth. How, how did that happen? How, how did that journey in 
you know, 1913 or 14. I, I don't know how long he was incarcerated. Um, how did that begin for him? And I'm so glad you wound up in California, by the way. I'm always <laughs> so happy when other people are from here and love it. Oh, I love California so deeply. Me too. So passionately. Yeah. Um, you know, my grandfather, I think he stayed in California because the land was so similar to the farmlands of Punjab. Mm. He, he understood the land. And, you know, with the turban and beard and riding the tractor, the, the old John Deere tractor, yeah. like they used the tools they had to, to work the land. There are these stories of him like falling asleep in um, grape crates and barns at night to keep himself safe from the snakes. I mean, like these gorgeous stories of wow. what it meant for him to show up and labor each day with the hope that his grandchildren would make it here. You know, decades later, he saw his Japanese-American neighbors rounded up and taken to their own incarceration camps during World War II. And, mm. and he took care of their farms so that they would have a life to return to. He, mm. he went to visit them when it was dangerous to do so. And he brought back this peak of, piece of petrified wood that my family had on our mantel place. Uh, on our fireplace for my entire childhood. And it was like, that's what it means to be a Sikh. And that's what it means to be an American. So I go back to the images that you're sharing with me of Sikhs showing up in the wake of crises to, to serve food, to serve longer, and insisting on love and service in the face of the abyss. You know, and that's, it's just, it's in the the songs and the stories and the scriptures that we were raised with to the audacity to choose Tardikala, to choose joy, to choose love in the face of it all. And, and so that's what my grandfather did. And, you know, when I grew up on the land, Sophie, I really had this idea of linear progress in my mind that our grandparents sacrificed so that we would be free. I mean, certainly you've been able to live a life because your grandparents sacrificed so that mm -hmm. you could, you know, live this equal, beautiful, flourishing life. And I had that conception of linear progress in my mind un until September 11th. You know, the, the very turbans that my people wore to show our commitment to love all <laughs> marked us as terrorists. Um, mm. I remember I was in college and I was watching the towers fall and and as soon as I saw an image of a man with a turban and beard, I realized that our nation's new enemy looked like my family. And within moments, we got news of hate violence on city streets across America. And mm -hmm. I'll never forget the phone call and the shaking voice on the other end that Mobir Singh Sodhi had been killed. He was a sick father who was standing in front of his gas station planting flowers in Arizona on September 15th when the man who killed him called himself a patriot. Um, Bilbir uncle was someone I knew, so it was like a family friend had been killed, and, and it was this moment of shatter, mm -hmm. just feeling so shattered, like so scared for our country as, as Americans, and then so worried that my family wouldn't be safe walking out the door. Um, but that moment, you know, I was in college. I thought I was going to be a, an academic. I wanted to be a professor of religion. <laughs> but his murder turned me into an activist. I got in my car. I drove, drove across the country and began to chronicle these stories that the nation wasn't hearing. And, you know, I thought of it as the backlash, this tiny slice of history that would just be over. And I was chronicling this 
archive for our children to learn about much later. But the violence went on. You know, hate violence never dipped down to the levels it was at before 9-11. And even though I, you know, I became a lawyer, a filmmaker, a speaker, like with every film, with every lawsuit, with every campaign, I still hung on to that idea of linear progress, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we were going to make the nation safer for the next generation. And then I became a, a new mother. And, you know, my, when my son was born, it was that first year of life that hate violence skyrocketed once again. It was the 2016 election season. And I just... I had this existential crisis. I I left my job at Stanford Law. I asked myself, like, what what is the solution that the country needs? And it's not just a political one, and it's not just an economic one. It's a spiritual one. It's a social Mm -hmm. one. And what what might it mean to take the reason Bill Uncle died? You know, his turban meant to represent his commitment to love without limit. Like, what if we took the value that he died for and made it our North Star? Mm. What if what if we learned how to build beloved community where we are mm-hmm. <laughs> with as much courage as we can muster every block, every school, every home? And that's when I started to sing the song of revolutionary love and begin the revolutionary love project and mm-hmm. write my book, See No Stranger. And really, Sophia, it's just a way to take Guru Nanak's vision and my grandfather's wisdom and mm-hmm. turn it into a call to action for a new era. I think about that moment for you, for you as an individual who lost someone you loved, uh, for his family, for your family at large, your community at large. It feels as an observer to be the kind of thing in in a life that is like a lightning strike. And it makes sense to me hearing the stories that you were raised in and knowing uh, that you, as you said, you know, divinity school, uh, which you were in at Harvard, you know, studying religious studies and then eventually getting your doctorate at Yale. I see how all of that, when that lightning bolt moment occurred, led you to this new path. Mm. But I am curious before we go forward, because this is everything I want to talk about, but I also know that the folks who listen to our show are like, but wait, there's these questions you ask and you haven't (laughs) asked her because we've just, we've just, we've, we jump right into the deep end. And I, I deeply love that about this conversation. I want to make sure I don't miss the opportunity to kind of tie together that timeline. You know, I'm I'm so curious, sitting in front of you now, your wisdom and your kindness just vibrate. Were you like this as a young kid? You know, was was young Valerie curious about human connection? Were you more curious about the farm? What what was your childhood and, and how do you think that little girl created a path, you know, to this moment we're, we're talking about now? So beautiful. What I love about you, Sophia, is that you're asking me to linger in the depths where I usually don't get to linger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because we all know you now. And I, yeah. I want to know how you <laughs> became this person. I, I want to know what that little girl in braids loved and thought about and wanted? I loved, I loved looking at the stars Mm. in the country. I could see all of the stars. So I would talk this to, I would talk to the stars every night. Like they were my friends. 
and I loved writing poetry. I would write these little, you know, poems on these scraps and then find a typewriter. It was like the big deal to find a typewriter to type up the poems and <laughs> and I would hand them as pr- birthday presents or holiday presents. And my grandfather would keep everything I had written, like every little poem <laughs> in this beautiful red folder, this red binder, all the way up until he died. Mm. It was like, if no one else cared, it didn't matter because he felt like what I had to say and what I was thinking and feeling mattered. I remember that feeling of wonderment with the land and trying to express it through language. I just would find that in my relationships with others. I was always really curious about what other people were thinking. That was my favorite question. It's like, what are you thinking about right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> to lead with that kind of wonder was everything. And and then I think it was at at six years old, like that first racial slur, it was you know, they, they call it internalized depression, but I think it, the way that you experience it in your mind when that first moment happens is like the presence of a voice. You know, mm. I began to think of it as the little critic, you know, you're not, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not white enough. You're not, you're not enough. So keep yourself small. The world's going to eat you, mm. you know, don't rock the boat be qu- you know be quiet in this moment and it would take me forever to raise my hand in class because i felt like i needed to say the perfect thing for it to be worthy of being heard so it was this beautiful difficult tension between like the little critic in me and the warrior in me the wise woman in me that my grandfather had projected inside of me and i feel like every time i was about to do something brave you know like okay, I'm going to take my camera and go across the country after 9-11. Like, it was the little critic that would get very loud. And even the night before my TED Talk, you can't talk about love as a lawyer. They're going to eat you alive. You know? mm. it was, and every time I would have to have this witness, this power struggle between the little critic and the wise woman who says, oh, my love, you are, you are brave enough. Mm. Take a breath and, and let's go. <laughs> It was a few years ago where I was I was done with the power struggle. I just I wanted to banish the little critic or send him away. And um, wise woman was like, he's actually a part of you. You do not yet know. <laughs> we need him. We just don't need him in charge. And mm-hmm. so I said, okay, I want to put the wise woman in, in me on the throne of my mind. I I want to marry her. I want to be faithful to her for all my days. And so I created a ceremony, <laughs> a wedding ceremony out of the cloth of my own faith with my sisters and married the the wise woman in me. Mm. And I wish I could say, and I was enlightened after that, but <laughs> the little critic still comes, you yeah. know, squawks in my ear, just like when I was a little girl. But the difference is, you know, he's not in charge. The wise woman says, my love, it's okay. Just pour the cup of tea. I know you're tired. Your kids are about to start school for the first time. You're up all night. You're just going to be with Sophia and you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be present. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? It's like, what if each of us could cultivate that way of loving ourselves well? What if each of us could be guided by our highest wisdom? What if each of us could return to the wonder that we felt when we were once small and open and willing to mm. be undone by the world. Well, it strikes me that the the container you created to hold both and, which is the theme I come back to again and again and again and again and again in my life, how can I hold more space for all of it? Mm. 
you saying, I'm, I'm going to lean into, you know, this wise woman and not my little critic. I was a camp counselor and a babysitter and a nanny. That, that was everything I did, you know, up until I went to college. And it was years later talking about how to manage this um, sort of behemoth, you know, this Hulk-sized monster that is my inner critic. And I, the metaphor I came, I came up with is, it's less poetic. It wasn't a, 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 you know, wedding to my wise woman on a throne, but I thought, oh, there, there is an adult me and she mm. should be driving. And it's yeah. kind of like when I was a camp counselor and I had to keep everybody else's kids alive. There's a bunch of kids in the back seat, and half of them are great and half of them are total pains in the ass. And that <laughs> voice is like the worst kid in the cabin. Yeah. And I just have to put that that one in the back seat and take a deep breath and drive the car. But I'm driving the car. So good. And it's I, sometimes when I'm really in it with that self-criticism, I, the thing that helps me is to stop and say, who's driving right now? Just who's driving? And if I don't feel like it's my highest self, if I don't feel like my most capable self is in charge, I literally close my eyes and I think like, park the car, open the doors. I have to go get in the front seat. And it helps. You know what I love about that is that when you're the camp council and you're driving, you're not going to be turning around and like, you know, punishing the kids or, or or strangling the kids or trying yeah. to get them to, you know, you're just, you're just going to drive. You're just going to lead. And I feel like there are parts of ourselves, like when I feel, you know, the terror in me and the shame in me and mm. the, the raw rage in me and the, you know, all, all the guilt in me, like all the different parts of me that the little critic likes to lean into and just keep there. It's not that these emotions and these parts of you are wrong or bad, that they're all a part of you. <laughs> it's that they make you the fully dimensional and rich person and vibrant person you are. And, and from that, you know, from honoring and loving the grief in you and the rage in you and the shame in you, you can, you can from that decide the, the step you want to take, where mm-hmm. you want to go, where you want to drive with that mm-hmm. highest wisdom in the driver's seat. So it's a very loving way to proceed to. I try. <laughs> it doesn't always feel that way, but I, it's definitely the goal. And I, I think about, you know, being able to create those protocols, being able to create those containers. And, and it's exactly what you did when you speak about giving your TED Talk, you know, who's going to listen to a lawyer talk about love? <laughs> but you did. And, <laughs> and you were at this moment in your career when this, you know, tragic day for the world happened and you you chose a different and unexpected path and i i really want to say you know to everyone who's with us in this conversation part of what the last few years and and going through this pandemic has taught me a lot about is framing and when you talk about the rise in hate crimes and violence that happened after 9/11 and we look at how they were stoked and and exacerbated again in 2015 and 2016, you know, by the then um, presidential candidate and and everyone who assisted him in framing. There is a deeply scary and detrimental trend 
to frame others as our enemies. And I, I believe 9-11 opened a pathway for that. And it's not lost on me that that was 2001 and it was only in the early 1990s that um, the doctrine of honest news had been removed and, and you know, Fox was permitted to begin. And, and there are people who have made money on encouraging the suffering of others, much like, you know, the, the news pundits who've, who lined up and got their vaccinations immediately, but are encouraging their, their, their viewers not to get them. Mm. We have to be wise enough to discern who is making money off of us hating each other Mm. and figure out why. And so it's the reason, and I chose the words that I opened this moment with saying it was a tragic day for the world. There's a lot of nationalism in, oh, a tragic day for America. It was a tragic day for the world. And I think so shocking for us, you know, for you and for me and for so many of us who are Americans who live here because we've witnessed a lot of tragedy like that, real violence and devastation. And for a long time, we've thought the adage of it happens somewhere else. Oh, how sad Mm. that that happens there. What a terrible thing is happening on the other side of the world. And I I think it was very traumatic for people to to be met with the reality that it can happen anywhere. Mm. And I think that tragedy was really bastardized by people who realized they could make a lot of money off off of the tragedy itself and who realized they could sell a lot of things if they could make us all afraid of each other. Yeah. And I wish, looking back, that it had been a moment where as a globe, we could have united behind the kind of ethos you're speaking about, behind a revolutionary love for each other. It's, it's again, a thing I think we missed an opportunity for during this pandemic. This could have been a time for us to say, what are we doing? Why are we fighting with each other? What are we doing? And it makes me incredibly grateful for people like you who, who looked at a moment and said, we've got to do something else. Mm. And so I suppose it's a way to bring us back to, to the story you began to tell, you know, your your lightning strike of, I'm going to pack up, I'm going to go, I'm going to tell these stories. What was that like, making that decision? Was was it propelled by the loss of your family friend? Was it propelled by the entire ecosystem of what you were seeing? What what made you say, I'm, I'm going? Well, it, it, it began with utter paralysis. Mm. You know, when, when I got the word of Will be your uncle's murder. I went to my childhood bedroom and I locked my door and I didn't come out for days. I stayed in my pajamas. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think I read. There were like three Harry Potter books at that time. I think I think I read all of them. Like mm-hmm. I just wanted to disappear into this other world. And then the world I chose to disappear into was a world where the the young people <laughs> marshaled the magic to show up to the dark forces, the dementors, Mm. when the adults in their world didn't. So it was really a fascinating moment because here I am in college. I don't have a degree. And yet 
where were the investigative journalists? Where were the mayors? Where were the elected leaders? Where were the people who could stand up to protect our community, to tell our stories? They weren't there. Mm. And I had a camera. I had an old camera. I had taken some time off of college anyway. I was going to go to India to, to study the partition of India through collecting oral histories of the past. And the university said, there's no way you have to come back to school. And I don't think they realized it was more dangerous for me to go across America in the aftermath of 9-11 with my turban-sick cousin than to go to India. But thank God they said yes. And and so it was this need to break this paralysis. I didn't even know we were going to make a film or that one step would lead to another. Mm. It was this realization that the stories that I grew up with from partition to the pogroms in 1984, they weren't in my history book. And the stories of my grandfather and his generation at the mm-hmm. turn of the century weren't in my history book. So I thought so too these stories would would be buried unless we started to capture them. So within a week I was on the road. We we went from home to home, from city to city. And here I was trying to be all professional. My mom bought me this London fog knock, you know, knockoff coat so that I could seem like a journalist. <laughs> My dad got me my first cell phone, you know, it's like, here, go. And, you know, it was all within the, within moments, the families who would see us, you know, we called them auntie and uncle. It was like the camera disappeared. We would weep with them and, mm. you know, we would weep with them when no one else was mm. coming to witness. We, we would arrive in places when the blood was still fresh on the ground and, and then hear the story. And the, the hardest part of every story wasn't just the act of violence. It was what came afterwards, you know, this lost sense of belonging, of, of dignity, of, oh, that, that story of linear progress that I had about what America was, all of that shattering in pieces around them. And, mm. and yet still insisting on like, you know, dr- drawing on the stories of ancestors to say, and, and we will still insist on love and bravery. My hardest interview and the most important one was the last one I did because, you know, as a kid, I've, I'm starting, people are starting to yell us at us to go back to our countries, more racial. So as we were driving across, it was, it was like seeing myself through the eyes of people who's like, oh, they see us as per- perpetually foreign, potentially terrorist. I began to feel that sense of despair spread in me. And, mm. and then I realized like my last interview I had to do was with the widow of Bilbira uncle the widow of Balbir Singh Soji, she was still living in India. So we we got on a plane, we flew across the, the world and drove through the villages, through the farmlands until finally that she was there, dressed in white, the color of mourning, dark circles under her eyes. And I could only ask one question, you know, I had my long list, <laughs> throw it away. I said, what, what, will you, what would you tell the people of America? And I was expecting like a some of the despair I was beginning to feel. And she said, tell them thank you. When I went to America for my husband's funeral, they came out in the thousands, Christian, Muslim, Jew. They wept with me. They cared me, cared for me. They, they loved me. Tell them thank you for loving me. Mm. So that, <laughs> that is what woke me up to the power of our stories mm-hmm. and the power of coming together in the face of 
of that much despair to say, no, we can model a different way. Mm-hmm. We don't have to choose us versus them the way that our nation did after 9-11. And we, we are living in a world shaped by the choices our nation made in the aftermath of 9-11 to divide the world into us and them. Mm-hmm. I mean, from 9-11 to the, to the insurrection, there was no other clearer example of mm-hmm. the dangers of dividing the world into good versus evil, us versus them, mm-hmm. than the bloodshed that we have seen in the last 20 years and just this year. And so if, if enough of us are, are, are waking up to choosing a different way of seeing you know, expanding the human heart to say, no, no stranger, to choose human dignity above all, mm-hmm. to choose differently. And, and Sophia, that's what gives me hope because 20, yeah, the violence goes on, you know, the fight goes on, but 20 years later, there's one important difference. That's you, everyone listening. There weren't journalists who were reaching out to contact me or capture our, our community stories. Mm-hmm. You know, there weren't people making the connections between different immigrant communities, between the Black and Indigenous and Asian struggles. There weren't, there weren't multiracial, multi-faith uprisings for Black lives or to stop Asian hate. I mean, mm. that is new and that is different. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's like the solidarity that I saw with my grandfather standing up for his Japanese-American neighbors that were just aberrations back then, right? But if we can model that as a way of being now, like Nessa, all together, struggles all together, then that, that makes me feel like perhaps the choices we make now can shape the world 20 years from now. Mm. Yeah. And it makes me hopeful that perhaps we can see each other before it's too late. Mm. I think about you speaking about Balbir Singh Sodhi and, and his murder. I will never get the image of a man planting flowers just before he was killed out of my mind. And I imagine that the story of who he was and how he lived and and even just that act of I I want there to be nature right outside of, you know, the entrance to my gas station. <laughs> More beauty probably touched some of those thousands of people his wife spoke about who came to honor his life and and in a way express their I'm sorry's that this happened in their own community. And I think so much about what it can mean for us when we when we hear of the loss of someone and we learn about who they they were and and we want to honor them and and I wonder how we might learn to be curious about each other and honor each other before we're gone. Mm. You know that that to me feels like a next step for us. Yeah. Uh, honestly, it's part of the reason I wanted to do the podcast to have these mm. conversations with people to to welcome people into spaces where they might be able to learn your story, learn other people's stories, um, find new thoughts, ideas, uh, outlets. And I I suppose, I know it's been done. Obviously, tens of thousands of people, you know, came out to to honor him and, and it his death really ignited a conversation about the danger of stereotyping. And I'd like to think it, you know, doesn't, feel that it was in vain, though I'm sure everyone who loved him would give anything to have him back. So for for people who are at home who who might not have read about him, who who might not know his story prior to you telling it today, can you tell us a little bit about what he was like or or what you would want people to know about, you know, the man who's making you smile in the way that I can see but but our, our <laughs> listeners can't? 
he was deeply kind and big hearted. You could just see it in his eyes and his smile. He was known for handing out candy to children who came to his gas station to ride their skateboards. He was known as someone who, you know, people would come and they would fill up on gas and then say they would have no money. And he's, he's oh, it's, oh, it's okay. <laughs> have a good day. Have a beautiful day. And his brothers would look at him and just like shake their heads. They would say, are you a saint or are you a fool? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Bobir uncle would just say, you know, God wants us to serve all. Mm. I don't think people of color who's who've been killed by hate violence or state violence. I don't I don't think they have to be superhuman or saints to be able to be remembered and recognized, you know, for, for their dignity to be affirmed. And there's something remarkable about Bilbir Uncle. Mm. <laughs> you know, the more I I I've I spent time with his family even after his death. The more stories emerged of how deeply he led with love. Just how deeply. Even when on the day he was killed, he was at Costco buying those crates of flowers. And he saw um, a jar at the checkout line to donate to the victims of 9-11. He just emptied out his pocket. Everything he had, $75. He, He was looking for a flag to fly on his store on the day he was killed. I think because he led with love, it changed his brothers. He was part of a big family and how they chose to respond to his death. Almost every year in the last 20 years, I returned to the gas station where Bilbir uncle was murdered. And I, I sit at the spot where he was planting those flowers and I close my eyes and I make my promise, Bilbir uncle, I promise to tell your story mm. every year. And And a few years ago, I went to make the promise, and that's when the hate violence was skyrocketing. And Rana, his younger brother, who's been trying to tell the story for, at that point, 15 years, turned to me, and he said, nothing has changed. And and I said, okay, Bobby, your uncle led with love. Who is the one person we have not yet tried to love? And Sophia, the next Mm. morning, we called his killer in prison. We called Frank Roque, and... At first, Frank says, well, I'm sorry for what happened to your uncle, but I'm also sorry for all those who were killed after 9-11. He's not taking responsibility. But then Rana, Rana's listening to Frank. He can hear what I can't hear. He keeps wondering about him, right? And he says, oh, Frank, this is the first time I've heard you say you were sorry. And Frank says, yes, I, I am sorry for what I did to your brother, And when I go to heaven to be judged by God, I will ask to see your brother Mm. and I will hug him and I will ask for his forgiveness. And Rana says, we've already forgiven you. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Mm. We can never forget what has been taken from us. Forgiveness is not forgetting, but forgiveness is freedom from hate, freedom from animosity and and I think that if if Rana Sodi could, you know, could refuse to create another us versus them, if he could refuse to let anyone outside of his circle of care, even the, what would happen if we could do that as a country? Mm. It would be revolutionary. It would be incredible. I think about that, that gap, the 15 years, you know, between your uncle being killed and, and you speaking to his killer. And you mentioned that you didn't know when at the start of those 15 years when when you went on the road and you began to document and tell these people's stories and 
go from town to town and make sure there was a record of people being harmed by this kind of violence. You didn't know it was going to turn into a documentary. You didn't have any background in filmmaking. I'm very curious about how you put the film together then and if those stories were resonating with you all, all those 15 years later when you finally spoke to Frank. Did mm. did that emotionally feel like the, the kind of final piece? Oh, such a good question. Yes. You know, I teamed up with Sharat Raju, who is a beautiful filmmaker. We fell in love in the course of making the documentary <laughs> and now my husband and father to my children who are playing downstairs. <laughs> and so, um, so we were making the film together. And mm. in those early years, he said, well, you know, we should talk. We should reach out to Frank Roque in prison and ask to speak to him. And I said, no way. Mm. I was not ready. I th- never thought I would be. Mm. You know, I was, I was holding on to, to my grief. I was holding on to my rage, my righteous rage. And I needed my rage. I needed to withhold my forgiveness because it was the only act of agency that I had. And probably Rana, Rana too. Wow. You know, the family needed time to process grief, to process rage. And because we were loved so well by others, we were able to move through it to a place where we could actually wonder about Frank again. So fast forward 15 years, it did feel like the final chapter and it required that time. And that's why I always leave it up to survivors to choose when forgiveness is right for them. Mm-hmm. For some, it comes at the end of an entire healing process like it did for us. It's like, I needed my animosity, right? And one day I've done the work, I've done the healing work. And I'm like, oh, I, I don't need it anymore. It's weighing me down. I can just, I can just blow it out. And for others, you know, they need they need the forgiveness at the very beginning of their healing process. I think about the survivors of the family members who lost their lives in the shooting in Charleston, looking in the face of Dylan Roof and saying, "I forgive you." It mm. made me cringe, you know. But what were they what they were saying was like, "You cannot make me hate you," and that is my act of agency. So mm. it's up to us to decide when forgiveness feels feels right, if ever. It just happened to be able to come for us at, at, the, at a time when we were ready to wonder about Frank again and, mm-hmm. and find not just a sense of closure, but a new beginning. And I do think you're right that it was a sense of completion because in those early years, and, and my first film, Divided We Fall, was like this. It was just like showing us as victims. Like we just needed the nation to know that this hate was happening to us because we were so invisible. But after the years went on, we realized like it's not enough to be known. We need to be loved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and ha- ha- how do we be loved? Like we need to show up in our fullness. And so we actually have something to teach America about how to find resilience and longevity in the face of oppression, like how to mm-hmm. labor with love and with joy, with Jardikala, with when the labor is this long, how to be Sant Sapahi, how to be sage warriors to fight for, deliver a more just and beautiful world. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I've spent the last 20 years of my life organizing around hate. I'm going to spend the next 20 years of my life organizing around love. Mm. How do you how do you define the difference? <laughs> I'm tired of reacting. I'm tired of like 
the crisis response mode and being under siege and just mm-hmm. waiting for the next beating, the next stabbing, the next murder, and all the memorials blur together. They're, I think we need people on the front lines to respond like that. And I also think we need to take turns. Yeah. And I thank God there are more people now than ever to show up, you know, mm-hmm. when the blood is still fresh on the ground. I just, I'm ready to play a different role and say, okay, we need you there. And we need to figure out how to build beloved community when there isn't a crisis, mm-hmm. you know, as, as the default. When you think about, oh, it's even hard for me to ask a question because my my whole body is like throbbing in response to what you just said. I deeply feel that. I'm so tired of reacting and translating and reacting and teaching and reacting and reacting and reacting. And I think especially, you know, four years of a of an administration that treated our nation like a trauma parade has really exhausted even the most dedicated frontline activists. And I wonder what we can do to do what you said, to organize around love with the lessons of having had years during which we've had to organize in response to, you know, um, hate and authoritarianism and these things. And it's not lost on me that there will be people now, uh, people listening who, I hope anyway, who will go and watch Divided We Fall, your documentary, if, if they haven't seen it yet. And I wonder what being at this sort of precipice of, of changing what you organize around, how do you take this thing you made all those years ago? What do you want people to take from it? You know, if someone says, I really want to see this so I can understand what happened to this community, so I can better love people, so I can better understand their stories, what what would be the thing you would want them to take so that they might go forward and, and organize proactively? I feel like there's this this beautiful rush to be anti-racist and and I'm so glad mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's now in the zeitgeist. But I feel like a lot of people are just holding it like a, an idea in their heads and they're trying to say the right words and model the right things and be woke enough to do, to you know. Mm. What I'm inviting people into is not, you know, I don't want you to become an activist like me. I'm inviting you into a way of being, a way of seeing the world. Mm. What would it mean to move through the world? I mean, you're walking down the street and to practice seeing no stranger. To be able to look at every face and say, sister, brother, sibling. Just retraining our eye to see the world, not in terms of us and them, but to see all others as part of your own family. For you to be able to see my son one day on the street and for me to know that you'll be there to protect him when I... I'm not there because you see him as your own son. I mean, that way of being with each other is what I'm inviting people into. And that can be practiced. Mm-hmm. That can be taught. That it's not mystical. It's not up in the air. It's it's mm-hmm. love is labor, right? Love can be modeled. Love can be taught. Love can be mm-hmm. practiced. We can do this together. Yeah. In the last administration, because I was so tired, I... And I realized, you know, when I, when I was like, everyone, <laughs> is this the darkness of the tomb or the darkness of the womb? What if our America is still waiting to be born? 
the midwife says to breathe and to push. And when I first gave those words, I received thousands of inquiries from people saying, well, how, (laughs) how do we breathe? How do we push? How do we labor? You know, Mm. how do we, how do we show up to this? And, and so that I, I, I left the country. I moved to the rainforest with my family in Central America for a whole year. Wow. I had a room of my own. (laughs) It's a gift that few women of color, mothers, activists are ever given. And I thank God for it because I was just able to sit. It felt like being in the womb of the earth. And I was Mm. able to sit and breathe and think. And I poured through everything I had written since I was seven years old, (laughs) every journal I had written and every textbook I had gathered. And I began to ask this question of how, how, and I began to see patterns of practices that I had never seen before practices that I call the core practices of revolutionary love. Wow. So that's when I started to write my book, See No Stranger. And you'll see it's 40 pages of endnotes in the back because it's deeply researched. (laughs) You know, it's pulling from neuroscience and ethics and history and psychology and infused with ancestral wisdom. Like how did our ancestors find resilience and longevity? How did they build community where they were? anti-racist, healthy, sustainable community, and how can we do that now? And so that is what it means for me to organize around love now. I started the Revolutionary Love Project, and people can go to seenostranger.com, and you'll see all of our work brought to life, Mm. a whole learning hub and teaching videos and guided inquiries and meditations. And you know what I'm seeing now, Sophia, is I'm seeing like schools that are taking revolutionary love and making it the ethic of their school culture or houses of worship, bringing their congregations around Mm -hmm. it and teaching it with each other. I'm seeing universities, I'm seeing activists. So I I feel like my work now is quieter, but it's actually deeper Mm -hmm. that it's, um, you know, revolutions happen, not just in the, in the grand moments where people are, are, are resisting their revolutions happen in the spaces where people are coming together to inhabit a new way of being. Yes. Mm. That now that I have found revolutionary love, it will be the song I will be singing for the rest of my life. That's beautiful. And I'm I'm so excited about what you've built so that we can participate. You know, not <laughs> not just in the memoir, not just with See No Stranger, but but really giving people a place to go and return to is such a gift. And I think about how fortunate we all are to have to have a guidebook like this that you know, you published just last year. And and even that the documentary, Divided We Fall, is is scheduled for a re-release this year with with updated footage. I I'm curious looking at what See No Stranger means and at revolutionary love becoming a an ethos and a curriculum, what do you hope will be the impact of the re-release of the documentary and and mm. and the the kind of community that you're building with all of this information for us. Yeah. So 911hub.org, 911hub.org is where we're releasing the film with whole new educational guides and many more materials. Mm. And I think what I'm inviting people to do is to see the gas station where Bill Beer Uncle was killed as the second ground zero. Mm. He was the first of countless people whose lives have been lost or shattered by the way our nation responded to Mm 9-11 in hate violence, state violence, ongoing war. And so 
if you can take his story into your heart, if you can see his gas station as another site of pilgrimage, if you can see it the way that I see it, the way that my community sees it, then you'll be doing that brave work of reckoning with the last 20 years. You know, every 9-11 anniversary, we see our politicians using the memory of those who died on 9-11 and weaponizing it to justify whatever policies abroad that we are continuing. Mm -hmm. And with the horror unfolding in Afghanistan, I feel like people are hungry more than ever to really understand and reckon with all the untold stories. Mm -hmm. You know, we responded to aggression with enormous aggression abroad and here at home. Mm -hmm. And honoring Bobir Uncle's story, knowing his story like we know Matthew Shepard or James Byrd or or Vincent Chen mm -hmm. helps us be able to tell the truth about American history, mm -hmm. about our present, and therefore from that place of truth telling, reimagine what, you know, the world could be, what the nation could be if we made different choices from here on. Hmm. And it's incredible to look at, you know, the historical and political landscape since then and understand the strangeness of what we choose to talk about. Hmm. You know, you see the you see the deaths of these 13 soldiers this week and yeah. the week that you and I are speaking anyhow um, in Afghanistan, uh, you see that being weaponized. And some people have been smart to point out how many people died in the last administration there that never, there was never a news story, let alone 24 hour a day news cycles about. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me as quite sad and, and makes the political motivation of it all feel clear that we're, we're beating into the ground the stories of these people who were lost. They were so young. It's so devastating. But they're not talking about all the other people killed that day. Mm. All the Afghans who were killed that day, the families. It, it makes me angry and it breaks my heart because I feel like we're still missing the point. We're missing the point that, as you said, if we respond to aggression with aggression— all we create is a vacuum of aggression. We've been there for 20 years and done nothing. Mm -hmm. What would have happened if we had met, as you said, aggression with our highest selves? Yes, with our sacred rage, but also with love and forgiveness. What if we'd invested a trillion dollars, not in war, but in school building, nation building, fortifying communities? And, and you know, what if... What if we had helped in a deep way? And I want to be clear, you know, that's not to judge the people on the ground. You know, I've, I've done USO tours to visit our troops. I, I have friends who have served in the military, veterans who I care deeply for. And I, I admire their efforts. And it's not lost on me that their efforts were made under policies that were not well-designed, the both and. And it's, it's true that I absolutely want, you know, terrible fundamentalist terrorist organizations to be dismantled because no one should have to live in that fear, but I want them to be dismantled there and here. Mm. You know, we, we're living at a moment in America where all of our intelligence agencies are saying we are so much more at risk from these white nationalist domestic terror groups than we have ever been from a foreign enemy. You know, we see uh, men plotting 
violence that if it had been plotted by al-Qaeda, we would call them terrorists. And we see the exact same handbook being used for um, the planned attack on Governor Whitmer in Michigan. You know, the explosions and the, and the torture and the... I mean, it's so horrifying that we have people here making these kinds of plots and, as you said, calling themselves patriots, planning domestic terror and using, bastardizing the notion of patriotism. Mm. And I, I'm very curious because of your depth of expertise on the community pain caused in the wake of displaced anger and rage after 9-11, you must have drawn parallels and I would imagine have observations that would be important for us with January 6th of this year. Yeah. I can tell you how I experienced that day and the connections I draw. My brother-in-law was trapped in the Capitol building He's a reporter for CNN, so my husband and I were locked ourselves in the office so my children couldn't see us and watched, you know, as the shattered glass and the tattoos and the Confederate flags. And in the meantime, on the phone with him, his voice is steady, but he's not seeing what we're seeing. (laughs) He's locked inside of his office, hoping that they won't find him. And it wasn't until, like, he was escorted out, you know, he's South Asian American, I thought, He's not just a reporter, he's brown. What would happen if they did find him? And it wasn't until he was escorted out that I began to become aware of my body. Mm. And I realized like, oh, the the throat closed, the chest, the fist, this is terror. Mm -hmm. And the terror is familiar. How many times have I seen people I love in harm's way in the face of white supremacist violence since 9-11? It's painfully familiar. And And I have finally learned, you know, Black women and Indigenous women have long known, (laughs) I've looked to them to understand that there was never a conception of linear progress Mm. in American history. It's always been this series of expansions and contractions and to sustain our communities and our families and keep them safe as much as we can to return them to to joy as much as we can, that that is the bravest work on earth and Mm. So sitting with all of these feelings and and these connections when my phone rang and I got a call from one of my teammates who had helped me build the Revolutionary Love Project. She said, Valerie, I'm so sorry. I said, I know. She's like, no, no, no. My parents were at the Capitol. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. Are they okay? She says, no, no, no. They were on the outside of the building, (sighs) part of the protest. So here's my brother-in-law on the inside and here are her parents on the outside. And... In that moment, it was like like Dr. King's words of how we're all bound together in this single garment of human destiny. Mm-hmm. You know? As much as I wanted to see those people as monsters, as much as I wanted to hate them, I had to see them through the eyes of their daughter who saw them as deeply wounded, deeply misinformed, mm-hmm whose real racial biases were just fanned and flamed all the way up to the presidency, who, who, that didn't make them any less dangerous, right? But she could see the wound in them. And so then I could see the wound in them too. And that's what you were talking about earlier in our conversation, the courage, the audacity to see the humanity 
of our opponents and the way that institutions have profited from misleading them, from stoking their nationalism, their worst impulses, Mm -hmm. authorized their hate, profited from their hate to see that it returned me to my humanity in a moment once again where I felt like I was teetering on the abyss. And, you know, and, and this is where I believe everyone has a different role in the labor of revolutionary love. It might not be my role to tend to the wound inside of her parents, but it might be her role. Yeah. And so if we all can take our parts, you know, if we all can take our pieces and be able to imagine a, a we, a future that leaves no one behind, even our, our enemies, even our opponents, then what then? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why not? We, we ought to try it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and what a space to hold. As you said, you know, you're, you and your husband are locked in a room. Your children are outside the door. You're looking at your brother-in-law who's locked inside. And you realize you know people who are outside. It's such a specific example of the place each of us finds ourselves in in the country right now. Hmm. Everyone's, everyone's either on the inside or the outside or locked in a room, but we're all somewhere <laughs> and we're here together. Yes. And it's wild. And, and I think yes. if we could return to that reality, that humanity, and I think we're all tired and overwhelmed and sad for the world. And it's strange because I know that in... On the one hand, we are living, all the data says, in you know, the best time to be alive, the least violent time to be alive, mm. which makes me realize that it feels like the most violent time to be alive simply because we're more connected. Yes. These things aren't happening in vacuums. They don't happen in the dark anymore, even though for so many people, I know their experiences do feel like they're happening in the dark. And I'm so grateful that we know each other better than we ever have, but God yeah. damn it, I want us to do something with it. I yeah. I want us to do something with this knowledge to, to, as you said, to see what we could do instead of continuing to do what we've always done. And um, I really do hope that the more moments that we can find like this where people really make space for each other and see each other i i hope it models it for other people i i really hope that our generation can be the one to you know kind of heal the lineage so we can have a new future you model it oh my gosh you model it so beautifully it's easy it's easy to catch up when when you're leaving <laughs> the room um I will tell you this though, when when I say I think we live in a really particular time, mm-hmm. like we're we're in a threshold moment. Like within twenty five years, the number of people of color on this land will exceed the number of white people for the first time since colonization. Mm-hmm. So, this question of like, are we going to descend into a kind of civil war? This these are the gasps we've been seeing in the last administration, right? The or are we going to be birthing a nation that a society that has never been like it has never been on the history of the planet mm. a, a truly marbled society mm. and so the task we have i mean it's, it's enormous because it is so new and it requires right. an expansion of human consciousness mm-hmm. a, a, a larger we than any human being has had to mm. do before in in all of history i hear you and i, I have to say and i'm sure this comes from a bit of 
ignorance. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I'm the white person in the room in this conversation, and I'm just so shocked at the notion that so many people who look like me could be upset about changing demographics to the point that we're discussing war. Like, I, I, hmm. I, I'm looking around going, who cares? Like, what? Why? What? What is this? What is this? Pro- what is it? What is it? Why does it matter? I, I don't know. And I, I wonder, is it, is it the kind of primal part of our brains that have been with us since early evolution where, where we literally were trained to be afraid of anything that didn't look like the people in our own village? Is it, um, is it a, a stoked nationalism? Is it perhaps the thing that I think a lot of people who look like me don't want to admit when they look in the mirror, which is that there is a fear of will the people who we've abused abuse us in the way when right. the power shifts, which just makes me so sad. You know, I think as a woman, you know, the only way I can kind of relate is, is as a woman, when I talk about gender equity, what I don't want is... Uh, let's say we use an easily available statistic, you know, one in four women in this country has been um, assaulted by the age of 22, sexually assaulted Mm. by the age of 22, they say. Um, Mm. What gender equity means to me is not that one in four men will be assaulted by the age of 22. It means that I hope no (laughs) one gets assaulted anymore. Right. You know, so I, I just, I don't know where that, fear comes from. I don't know where this things are changing. We need a militia, you know, white nationalist terrorist groups. What is everyone so afraid of? I really and truly don't understand. And I wish we could ask these questions and get to the bottom of it so that we might find that there's nothing there. It's like, it yeah, feels to me that's like a it. conversation about a boogeyman <laughs> and he doesn't yeah, exist. It's so, so good. I just want the whole country to hear you. Honestly, it's like, I, it's like, yes, yes to everything you're saying. Every time I've sat down with, um, with, with a white supremacist or, or former white nationalist, and I, and I, like, I, I, like, I want to hate them. I just like, okay, I'm going to wonder about them and listen to their story. And, and it always happens, Sophia. It's like their aggression is a symptom of unresolved grief. Like they're grieving mm. this idea of America. They're, they're grieving this notion that this country belonged to them. And it's so it's so primal. It's like before language. This and that's what white supremacy does or is. It's like, mm. and and this and the thing is, they're right. The country is changing. Like it doesn't. The power isn't consolidated just in a class of a certain class of white people anymore. It, it is changing economically, politically, culturally, and so. Somebody needs to, and this is hard to say in progressive circles. You can Mm. imagine the the heat I get. It's not popular to stand up to talk about love, Mm. (laughs) right? And when when I'm like, actually, somebody needs to help them grieve. Yeah, there's there's a way to help them grieve, to let go of the world they thought they knew, and surrender and open to an unknown world. And for us then to say, hey, you know what? And there's a place for you in it. Wow. Come, come with your mistakes, come with your shame, come with your guilt, come with your privilege, come with, but if you come with an open heart, I will, sh- I will promise you that we're not leaving you behind. I, that, that's mm. my job when I'm talking to progressive folks. 
Because they're like, why do we have to? I'm like, actually, you don't have to, but somebody has to. Yeah, like, some of us We have all have to. different roles. Like, tend mm-hmm. to the people, the black and brown people in trauma, like front lines, start to build the community that should And others should be sitting with those opponents and, and, and doing that work. Because otherwise, who's reaching them? This is what you're naming. It's like all of those who are profiting from their fear and their terror and giving them a story about it and channeling that into aggression. Like that will keep going on. This is not just about the Trump era. It'll just keep going on for the next 25 years unless Mm. we start to do differently. We start to reach them differently, at least some of us. Mm. What What a notion though, to sort of put down all of your own predispositions and meet someone where their grief is. <laughs> sure, glad you're teaching right, us how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> because you'll be so tempted to like yeah. legitimize it. It's like yeah. actually you're not legitimizing it. It's it's and, and a lot of this comes with from, from like how I've learned to parent children mm-hmm. while having a tantrum. It's like well, what is it like say um, say yes to the feeling and no to the behavior. Like yeah. it's like it's okay that you're feeling this way. So much of this is just helping people process these really intense, very human emotions mm-hmm. in an absolutely changing world. And well, and the interesting thing is if, if you can make space for someone's feeling, very often they can process it and then realize that it's untrue. Yeah. Oh, I had this feeling and actually that wasn't based in anything. How weird. I've carried, they don't need it anymore. Yeah. yeah. You, when, once, you, once you process it, you can put it down. Yeah. Uh, I just think we we need yeah. group therapy, all of us together, just like the whole country. I I'm into it. I don't know how we yeah. pass that policy, but I I think it's time. Do you do you know I feel like we're missing a civic institution? And I've been thinking a lot about this. I spent the last few few weeks in the mountains. I was like, we're missing a civic institution in this country. Absolutely. And, and we need we need to build it. Like we don't have like in the previously religious centers were like the places where people would learn how to be in community, mm-hmm. moral development, higher consciousness. But now these places are just racially, culturally segregated. Yes. And we're such a marbled society that there's no one religious institution where everyone belongs. So we need to build like a civic space yeah. where people come together and grieve together and rage mm-hmm. together and wonder together and practice listening to each other and mm-hmm. reimagine together and reclaim joy together. So. Oh, I will brainstorm on this with you anytime. <laughs> okay, because that's what I'm working on. I love it. No, I love it. I, I'll i never forget yeah. the first I, I went to uh, years ago. I went and did a, you know, a full week at like an experiential therapy center. And to be in community that way and to, and to go through this stuff where you are, um, you know, you're doing the family design and each person in the room gets to go through theirs. And so they select mm. other people in the room to role play their family, their mother, their abuser, their sibling, their whatever. And you do this with these people who you've just met. And it is the most transformative, incredible mm. experience. And I mm. thought, oh, if we if we did versions of this in community, yeah. <laughs> The veil would be lifted so fast. Right. You know? It's like we have the tools, but we're treating our traumas like as if they're individual traumas. Yeah. You know? And it's instead of taking those tools and say, okay, we as a community can learn how to heal together. Mm -hmm. And these are the exercises. These are the tools. These These are are the ways. ways. 
I was going to ask you, you know, as someone who has been a leader and how to respond to both global and personal trauma with grace and kindness and, and community care, I know that there are people listening thinking, well, what do I do? I feel paralyzed by the world we live in today. And I, I was going to ask you what your advice would be for them. Is Would you say it's that, to try to find the balance between the breathing and the pushing to, what, 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 do, you, what do you recommend? The, the first thing I want to tell you is that if you find yourself breathless these days, breathless by what's happening in the world, the nation, in your life, I used to think that my breathlessness was a sign of my weakness, but my, my mentor told me what I wish to tell you that your breathlessness is a sign of your bravery. Mm. It means that you are awake. Mm -hmm. You are awake to what's happening right now. The world is in transition. Mm -hmm. You know, is it the darkness of the tomb or the womb? It is a question. It is both, you know, things are dying in this, in this lifetime that we're in and, and something new is wanting to be born. And can we show up to this this transition, the America that needs to be, the world that needs to be, a sustainable world mm -hmm. where we can last for generations. This is a special, specific, singular time that we are living in. And so the breathlessness is okay, my love. It means you are awake. And those emotions that you are feeling, oh, your grief, the, if you're feeling grief in the wake of Afghanistan or the pandemic or the insurrection, whatever it is, it means that it is just touching your capacity to love. Hmm. You know, honor your grief, process your grief, be brave with your grief, take time for your grief. I mean, that, that's what I had to learn. Like I, I needed to let, mass massacre in Indianapolis in April, you know, my old self again on the sick community, my old self would just be push, 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 push. But I had to lie down and I had to feel my body hmm. and I had to feel my sorrow and I had to feel my fatigue. And I had to allow myself to be brave with it by feeling it. That's all it means. Feel it. And then the rage, <laughs> your rage is righteous rage. I used to think I was only as good or polite or spiritual as my ability to choke down my rage. No, no, rage is, is harness your rage for the energy that you need to fight for what you love. Mm -hmm. And that processing your raw rage in safe container. So literally like the screaming and the beating and the drumming and the tantrum throwing, right? Our ancestors knew this, the dancing and the sweating and the shaking, let it out, process it whatever mm -hmm. way you need. My son and I would throw pillows on the ground in our bedroom to let out our rage. And then you take a breath, right? A spaciousness is created and you say, okay, how do I want to harness this energy for mm -hmm. what I do in the world? So be brave with your grief, honor your rage, and then, you know, choose to lead with your wonder. What is my role? What is my particular role? Mm -hmm. I don't have to do all the things, but there is something, I have a sphere of influence. I have an arena. I think of the stars in the sky. You only have to shine your light in your particular corner of the sky to be part of constellations, to be part of a larger movement. And mm. so you just focus on that and you just take that one step, which leads to another and another. And if you can find ways to, mm. to rest, to breathe, to dance, to let joy in, to sustain that labor, it's not necessarily about balance. You know, you might not have equal time of the breathing and the pushing. It's, it's about harmony. You know, if I slice my life up into so many pieces and put them on a scale, you know, it doesn't doesn't quite work. But if I am mothering my children and showing up to movement and being with my husband in a way that allows my life to sing, mm -hmm. you know, then I can just be listening to the discordant no notes and say, okay, a little bit more here and a little less here, and then and then your life can sing. 
Sing the song of love. <laughs> hmm. Beautiful. And I think so many people will want to, you know, they'll want to visit the site. They'll want to learn about how to integrate this idea of revolutionary love into their lives. So I really am I'm so grateful for, you know, you taking the time and, and teaching and welcoming us into your space. I'm wondering for you, and I'm really excited to ask you this question. It's my favorite thing to ask everyone, but I, I just am I'm giddy. <laughs> um, you know, we we're on this show. We're we're sitting here having a conversation inside of the container of work in progress. And I'm I'm wondering what in your life, you know, whether it's this year or this day, feels like a work in progress to you. Knowing that I am enough hmm. as I'm mothering my children. I'm gonna I'm gonna cry. <laughs> um my daughter, I'm still nursing her, but she's going to be starting preschool next week. Mm. And it's the same day that my paperback comes out. <laughs> wow. So my book, I finished writing my book the night that she's born. And the paperback comes out the, night, the day that she starts school. It's like they're tethered together. They're launched into the world on the same day. And wow. And if the, if the little critic is loud at all these days, it's like, you know, the never enoughness of mothering, of not spending enough time, of not being there every second. And, and I'm with you and I want to be with you, Sophie, and I have this tea. And that means my mother is with my daughter downstairs in these last days before she starts school, you know, and it's yeah. always that. And she wants me to be here and I want to be here. And mm -hmm. I can, I, being with you allows me to go back to her with new energy. And I have to remember that mm -hmm. and, and allow the singing of that. But something about when they're small and you just want the world to be safe and good and magical all the time. And, and so you have to fight for it out there mm -hmm. and that gorgeous tension of the out there and the in here, you know, and then the wise woman at night says, Oh, my love, it's enough. It's enough. It's enough. Beautiful. I think, you know, if I may, I, I don't have kids yet, but I remember being a kid who was very aware of, what my parents were doing. Mm. And I think because I was the only one, and so I, I was around adults a lot. And I don't know if it, you know, is meaningful, but I loved watching my parents do what they were good at because it really made me feel like I had permission to go out and be good at things, to command attention, to speak on my ideas and yeah, I, I loved when my parents would sit and play with me, but I really loved watching them be great at things <laughs> for whatever that might I be worth. love that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I imagine that. your kids are deeply inspired watching you be phenomenal <laughs> at things. They, last night they... Um, my daughter saw me signing my book on my kitchen table because that's my book signing is on the kitchen table. <laughs> and she just got into my lap and just started signing them with me. <laughs> so there's a set of books that has her scribbles in it. I love that. Thank you for her returning me to that. I think I'm going to hang on to that for a long time. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> because that's, that's when you're teaching by being. Mm. And those are really mm. valuable lessons in addition to the ones that you're teaching when you're teaching. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Can I, I share with you one last thing? Oh, please. It just popped yes. into my head. <laughs> on, um, on Friday mornings, my, my daughter and I, her name is Ananda, which, which means joy. And we take these walks to the beach. And mm. I keep thinking, like, I don't want her wonder to be shut down mm. too early. You know, how do I? help. So you were talking about teaching by being. So we walk and we just wonder about all the things around us. And we started to sing a song Mm. and it goes like this. (laughs) Ants on a leaf, birds in the sky, sweet little bee, tree so high. Wonder baby says, wow, whoa, you're a part of me. I don't yet know. Oh, (laughs) Okay. All right. <laughs> so we do that with people oh. and with her own emotions and just like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> she's, wonder baby. She, yeah, wonder. She's like, are you my wonder baby? Yes. <laughs> wow. I love that. Okay. So filmmaker, author, speaker, lullaby writer. We're just, we're just going to keep building out the the explanations for the intro to this episode. <laughs> I love it. I love so it. So sweet. <laughs> oh, Valerie, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your heart. Valerie's interest in highlighting the experiences and telling the stories of those who were wrongly blamed, who were victimized, and who were harassed in the backlash of the war on terror is a tremendously important piece of our 9-11 experience and attempted recovery. The other is those who lost so much during the attacks themselves, witnesses, survivors, family members of the victims. Our second guest for this September 11th introspective not only sought out those stories, but she lived them. Our second guest is Delaney Kaleo, a filmmaker, musician, and photographer in New York. Delaney lost her father and two uncles in the World Trade Center attacks, and as a result, found herself courted to testify for the prosecution of five prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. She was just a kid, and Delaney decided that instead of participating in a penalty trial, she would travel the country meeting survivors and surviving families from tragedies like 9-11, and also other tragedies like Sandy Hook and the Las Vegas shooting. Her work to understand loss, to be there for grieving families, and to heal her own grief has led to an incredible body of work. Documenting these experiences, as well as her public speaking work, have landed her on the list of the top 17 Gen Zers to change the world. We'll be able to hear about what it was like to gather these stories, as well as the projects that Delaney has on the horizon. Last time I saw you, I was like a child, it feels like. It's crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. Do, I do was so little. How old were you when we met? I don't even know. I think nine, 18, 19, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I mean, you were definitely was, still a teen. Yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely embarrassing, but it's fine. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Like, I, I would think that if I had met someone as a teenager and we were still in touch all these years later and and – you know, um, I was being called upon as as sort of a like an expert and empathetic human. I'd be like, yeah, I'm, I was probably pretty badass as a teenager. <laughs> Maybe. Thank you. Yeah. No. Yeah. That was at United State of Women conference. I think mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. like doing videography. That was like one of the first things I ever did. For, yeah. Like, videography. That. So that's cool. 
Yeah. So, so cool. What a great team they put together for that. Yeah. Well, let's jump in. I mean, what? Where? where are you today? Where do I find you? I'm in my apartment in Brooklyn. It's interesting to me, you know, thinking about your your history, your experience, what your family went through, you know, you've stayed in New York, I imagine, because you love it and it and it feels like home. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because when I was younger, like we moved out of the city when I was seven after my mom got remarried. And I never really came back until after high school. So like I moved here when I was 18. And it's definitely like bittersweet living here, mm-hmm. I think, because it's such a great place for people with like the LGBTQ community and I feel super safe, but also like sometimes it's difficult. But I, mm-hmm. I, I do love living here and I'm glad to be back mm-hmm. after a little while. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. So can you take us back a bit? You know, you mentioned we we met at the United State of Women years ago, an incredible convening for all sorts of women creatives and political leaders and athletes and activists and and people to come together and work on issues together, to gather for great conversation, Um, almost like a giant conference. And I remember being so impressed with you then and also really taken aback, you know, to to hear your story, you know, being a child whose family was affected on 9-11. Can you, can you take our listeners back a little bit, you know, give, a, give them kind of some of the background? How, how old were you when, when September 11th happened? Yeah, so my birthday is actually September 16th. So I mm. was two turning three mm. at the time. So I was like really a baby baby. But yeah, my my dad uh, and my two uncles, they lived downtown um, and they worked at the Trade Center. My dad actually got a job on Wall Street as a janitor when he was 18 and somehow made his way up (laughs) to work at Kenner Fitzgerald on the 104th floor there uh, and then got my two uncles a job. Uh, So they all worked together there and unfortunately passed away Hmm. that day. What, What did they all do? So this is kind of hard because my family doesn't really talk about it too much. But Mm -hmm. um, my dad worked as a senior managing director uh, for Canner. Mm -hmm. And I honestly don't even know what my uncles did. I know they worked there, but I'm Mm -hmm. not exactly sure what they did. I think about that moment, you know, you were about to turn three. Obviously, you were a baby. And we know now that, you know, that's kind of around when kids really start to form memory. Do you yeah. have memory of that day? Because I feel like everybody who who was alive and, and older remembers exactly where they were, exactly what they were doing. I remember I was in college. I came downstairs. I was going to go to class. I was walking through the building I lived in to go get my bike. And I was like, what is going – what is on the TV right now? Yeah. And I remember being so stunned. I watched the news for a while and then realized I was late, and I think I had that, you know, I was still a teenager. I, I, I had that, like, oh, God, I'm late. I got I to gotta go to class. I'm going to get in trouble. And yeah. I went to class, and then I was sitting there, and I was like, what am I doing here? 
Yeah. Like, what are any of us doing here? And I remember getting up and mm-hmm. leaving and getting on my bike and and literally starting to bike around campus to check on my friends who wow. were from New York. And I'll just never forget it. And I, I, I can't imagine being, you know, being a baby that day. Do you have memory or have you pieced kind of memories together since? So... Yeah, I I have one memories in specific, but I think a lot of my memories are kind of built off of what other people have told me, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense, Mm -hmm. just growing up. But yeah, I was actually getting ready for ballet class (laughs) that morning. My mom had this woman who is basically like my second mom, her name is Dora, with her that day. My dad had gone to work like super early and Dora was getting me dressed for ballet class and I just remember like my mom looking at the TV and like hysterical just Mm -hmm. crying and like that's really the only like vivid memory that I have because it's the first time I saw my mom cry like the first time you see your mom cry is like whoa (laughs) what's going on but that's really the only memory I have but what people have told me is that like after that I don't know my mom and took me and my brother who was 18 months at the time downstairs outside we lived really close uh, to the Twin Towers. So we could see it from where we were. And uh, mm. actually, I read this in an article because a lot of what I know about my family's history on that day is also what I've seen online, which is weird. But my mom started like running towards the buildings. And mm. um, me, Dora, and Joseph were just sitting on the steps. Um, and a police officer stopped her. And we just sat on the steps like all day waiting. And then after that, we had to evacuate the area, I'm pretty sure. So my mom tells me that she has this one memory of us just sitting in the back of the car where the seats were facing out the back, like looking at what was going on, like all the clouds and dust and everything. And she was like, wow, my life's over. My life's over. Like I just have these two toddlers and I'm just driving away. And we went to... uh like a shelter type of situation for a few days. And that was like mixed with everybody else from the company. So the whole company was told to go, like the families of the company of Cantor Fitzgerald were told to go to one place. So we all went to one place and it was just, I don't have many memories of this at all, Mm. but it was just waiting. People were just waiting to see if uh, their loved ones came home. And unfortunately, actually for Cantor Fitzgerald, Nobody ended up making it home. It was 658 employees passed away that day. Wow. So it's definitely a lot of emotions there. I mean, I imagine the the disruption of, you know, your life as you know it and your apartment and, and your family and everything. Then to be in, you know, a, a shelter and evacuation situation, you know, I, I would imagine that would be very disorienting. I I obviously... I wasn't there. I didn't see inside those places. But even when I think about when natural disasters happen and like they turn football stadiums and and theaters yeah. and arenas into places for people to go, it it feels like it would be very overwhelming. It's it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of stress and sadness and hope and and fear all mixed in together. Yeah. So I yeah, gosh, I I can't imagine I I would have great memories either, let alone as a little kid. Yeah. I, yeah. 
I wonder, I mean, I have, I have so many questions about this experience because you've, you've become such an amazing advocate for, for so many other kids who've been through this, you know, kids who went through this on 9-11 and, and kids who've been through this in other instances. And I'm so amazed with what you've chosen to do with your experience and like you've turned it into a way to advocate for other people. But before I get into advocacy, which I feel I feel like really goes to community, I, I don't want to miss the individual. Like, I don't want to miss the importance of your story, and I don't want to miss the details of your family. And and I guess just as we're approaching, you know, this this twentieth anniversary of this horrible thing, I don't know what what do you want people to know about your dad? Like I. Yeah. I just really want to know about about him, about your uncles. Like, I um, I like to. I want to know who they are, so so they're not just a number. Oh, I appreciate that. I think that a lot of times, nine um, eleven isn't really humanized like that. Mm. I've heard my dad was a really cool guy. I've heard that he was just like goofy. And mm. very much so, always in jeans and, like, a T-shirt with, like, holes in them. Like, he didn't care about what he wore or impressing anyone or anything like that. I don't know. I People tell me that I was, like, stuck to him, like, Velcro since I was, like, <laughs> very little, obviously. Um, and um, my uncles were the same. My Uncle Steven was, like, homecoming king. So he was, like, all the girls, like, loved him. And <laughs> my Uncle Tommy, uh, he was a gymnast. And musicians, Whoa. which is, I think, maybe where I get that from. But yeah, they they were definitely like the life of the party. That's what I've heard. I've also just, it's kind of hard to talk about them because I feel like I don't know them. But I I have like this overwhelming feeling that like I am a part of, you know, them. Does, or I guess, you know, when, when that all happened, I mean, gosh, I'm sure she had so much on her plate you know when you talk about your mom having that feeling of everything's over did she really make it a priority when you were a kid to talk to you about stories about your dad like to to really make sure she could give you sort of you know color to that picture yeah I mean I think that started to happen more so when I was older Mm -hmm. because when I was younger she was still very much so going through all of that but yeah, I love when she tells me stories and I love when she shares with me like little things they had together, like inside jokes and stuff like that. Cause yeah. it, it gives me like perspective that I would have never had. But yeah, when I was younger, she didn't talk about it as much, but now it's like really cool to hear stories. So did you guys, cause you talked about moving away. Did you move away quickly or did that take some time? Um, it did take some time. We stayed in that apartment. Actually, we went back to it for a few years. And then when I was seven, my mom met another guy and she got remarried and we moved upstate New York and we stayed there for a while. And then I went, actually went to high school in Florida, which is so random. Um, (laughs) but yeah. Was upstate an awesome experience for you? Um, you know, no. <laughs> I mean, it was, I don't know. I think that I was 
I was just in an area where there wasn't a lot of acceptance for a lot of different things. Mm. Um, it was like I was going to Convent of the Sacred Heart in Greenwich, Connecticut, and it was an interesting experience. I would just say that, honestly. It was – I learned a lot, but I can't imagine living there now, no. Mm. I can't imagine living there. Well, I think anytime you're anytime you're in a place that's small enough – someone who doesn't fit a typical mold is considered different, it can be hard. Yeah, you know, exactly. And I, and I think especially, you know, my mom grew up Catholic. Oh, there's horror stories. <laughs> and I, I think it's funny, my my girlfriend, um, Jacqueline Taboni, who's a, another rad actor, we did a show together and she came on the show last year and was talking about what it was like to be like a young queer girl growing up yeah. in a Catholic school. And so yeah. I'm glad for you that, you know, you got to get out and then also that you get to be back in Brooklyn and be yourself in a place that makes you happy. Yeah. And I think those years were really difficult too. Like it might not have been exactly the place I was in, but mm. coming to realize everything yeah. at that age was definitely difficult because there was so much confusion. I was like, what? Like, okay, everybody knows about this and Everybody, like, nobody else knows about anybody else's parents who have passed away. But, like, mm -hmm. we have history classes once a year where we talk about, you know, the way my dad passed away. And it was just, I think, 13, 14, 15. Those were really hard years for me um, mm -hmm. when I started to really understand what happened. I became just very depressed, just contemplating life, honestly. So, yeah, maybe it was more so just the age. <laughs> Yeah. That was a difficult age for me. When did you start to become aware of what had happened? Because I, I really wonder what it was like for you being a kid who, yes, has some memory but was too young to understand. When did when did you begin to realize that people were talking to you about this or trying to explain to you what had happened? Hmm. I guess a few different things I, I come to mind because I remember the first time my mom actually had a conversation with me about it. Mm. She was like, dad has gone to heaven. And I was like, okay, where's heaven? <laughs> I was like, you know, like, where is it? And she was like, oh, it's up there. And for the longest time when I was a child, I thought the ceiling in my parents' bedroom was heaven. And I would like lay down and look up at it all the time. So like mm. there was that. And then there was like middle school. I'll skip to middle school. The second time, because a lot of it wasn't spoken. That's the thing. A lot of it wasn't spoken. A lot of it was like me on YouTube at night looking up things. But mm. yeah, in middle school, actually, we were in computer class and my teacher told everybody, all right, we're going to look at our digital footprint today. So basically typing your name into Google and uh, seeing what comes up. And I was like, you know, I'm searching my name, whatever. And of course, like, it's like 9-11, 9-11, 9-11. And I was like, hmm. And I just did a deep dive and I found like a conspiracy article about my dad and my uncle. And it was like, the Cleo brothers are still alive. And I was like, What? I was like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And so I read through the whole article and there's like pictures of them in like 2012 or whatever it was at the time, like saying that they're still alive and here's the proof and here's the everything. Like I was like, my mind was blown. 
And I printed it out. And um, I came home and I was like, mom, look at this. I was like, they're probably like, we, uh, they're still alive. And she was like, oh. she was like, no, 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 no. Like, I promise you, like, that, that they're not. And so like, that was my first experience with like conspiracy theories. And then I was like, okay, <laughs> that, it was, it was just very confusing. And, and, and then like, I started to get like better at handling it at school because every year in history class, they would be like, all right, today we're going to talk on 9-11 every year. They would talk about it and I would just opt out. I would be like, I'm, I'm going to go somewhere else for this. Mm-hmm. As I guess I, so I started to get older and it, it was just confusing, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's crazy to hear you talk about what it was like to find that article. Yeah. Because I think about, I mean, we live in a society where conspiracy theories have gotten so out of control, right? And we see it with public health and we see it with history and we see it, all of these things. And I really wonder like, oh, did the person who wrote that article, who like tried to tell the untruth and make it look true, like, I wonder if they ever stopped to think about your dad's kid finding it, you know? I wonder how we could be just more respectful of each other and gentler with each other's experiences, you know? Like you said, people don't humanize the event. And I think part of what I struggle with with so much of what's going on in the world is we forget that this is all about human beings. So I'm glad, I mean, talk about knowing yourself and, and, you know, being in whatever way you would say sure of yourself as a kid to be like, no, nah, I don't need to put myself in this position with you guys in the classroom and the, I'm going to take a moment. Did yeah. you, did you have other kids who had experienced this, you know, other, other 9-11 kids that you grew up with? So you had anybody to talk to who knew what it felt like? Yeah, actually my two friends, Katie and Emily, mm-hmm. uh, they went, they went to the same school as me we tended to uh, get pulled out together and then we would go in a room and like eat snacks and like (laughs) talk about whatever else uh, that day. But besides them, no, I didn't really know any other kids uh, who lost parents. Um, Not until I turned 18, 19 and I started actually actively seeking out other Mm. kids. I'm really glad that you had that. And and when I start to think about that, you know, the ecosystem of families that were affected by this you know it's I know this is a kind of taboo and like maybe out in the world an unknown subject but you've spoken about it you've um you've talked about your family's experience with the 9-11 victim fund and and I realized we might have listeners today who haven't heard of that or don't know what it is so yeah could you could you explain a little bit to familiarize people and and maybe share what your experience was like with the 9-11 Victims Compensation Fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually didn't know about it until I was 18. Wow. Because my mom just hid all of that from me, mm-hmm. which I think was probably best. Um, but the Victims Compensation Fund was set up by the government basically to pay families uh, who lost a supporter of their family that passed away on 9-11. So... The way in which it was set up is is interesting. I mean, they based it off of how old the person was at the time, um, what position they held in the company, and they would give them their salary up until they were 60, or they would have been 60. 
So like the problem I have with that is that there were so many parents that were older and that held positions that may not have paid as much. And yeah, that caused a lot of issues within the 9-11 community and even within my own family. Well, it strikes me as I understand that the idea is to make sure people can continue not to be crass, but to afford their life. You know, that yeah. a, that a woman like your mom who loses her husband doesn't then also lose her apartment, like what, whatever it looks like. But I think about the other side, which is what you're saying, which is how could you value a life based on a salary? Mm-hmm. Like why yeah. not pool all of that money and annually give the same amount of money to every single person who lost someone? Like right. to every kid, to every... Exactly. <sighs> And I'm sure there were all sorts of people analyzing this and they made the decision they made for a reason, but I get it. It feels very uncomfortable to think some people's family members were quote unquote worth more based on their salary. Like that just, I imagine that left such a bad taste in so many people's mouths. And, and probably to like exactly what you said, it really exacerbated pain that a lot of people were in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you... Because you've been willing to talk about this. Do you, have you advocated alongside other family members? Ha, has there been any kind of solution with the fund or no? Is it, is it just kind of what it is and that's it? it yeah, mm. the latter. It just kind of is what it is. Mm. But I guess that's something I could think about going forward. Um, I guess it has been pretty uncomfortable to talk mm. about. So it's something I definitely should talk about going forward, mm-hmm. I think. I think it's important. I mean. Why not? I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but I do know that you and the other young people whose stories you have highlighted and helped to tell are wildly impressive to me. And I feel like if that was something you wanted to do, you all would absolutely come up with a better idea. Yeah. I agree. I'm really curious about something because I got to speak to a really incredible woman, um, Valerie Carr, about Mm. the after effects of these last 20 years um, on her community and her family. And Valerie's family is from India. Um, Mm. they, They are of the Sikh faith. She lost a family member. And to hear her story and, and to, you know, I've been hearing your story for as long as I've been privileged enough to hear it. And, and to hear the stories of people who lost their people on 9-11. The thing that really struck me was, wow, this was this horrible moment where, you know, radical terrorism gripped the nation and harmed people. And we see that kind of radical terrorism in all sorts of belief systems. Mm -hmm. And it breaks my heart, not just for the people we lost, but but for the loss of an opportunity to recognize each other as more human than we ever had before. And the tendency seems to be to try to make other people seem less human, you know, to lean into like nationalism and xenophobia. And we saw this like burst of Islamophobia and all of these people, you know, who were targeted around the country in reaction to, to the event that, you know, changed your life and so many other people's lives forever. Did, did you have a sense of that happening around you 
or or were you okay so you weren't like too young because i wonder i've certainly you know like i've had men in my life talk to me about how when there's just men in the room some guys will be like oh yeah and we can say this because the girls aren't here you know they they're just like the worst (laughs) and i and i thought about it and i was like man i wonder if being a child of 9-11, if people sort of feel permission to say really horrible things about other communities in front of you. And like how hard I would imagine that is to hold. Yeah, absolutely. It's basically like an invitation to for Islamophobia to be somewhat, you know, an okay thing to say, which is horrible. It, mm-hmm. I, I think it's horrible. But my first introduction to Islamophobia was when I was like, yeah, probably eight. I was eight. Um, and I was in gymnastics class and everybody was going around. I don't know why this was happening, but everybody was going around saying what religion they were. And, you know, this one girl was like, I don't want to say. And we were like, why, why, why don't you want to say? And she's like, no, I can't say what I am. And mm-hmm. I remember feeling so confused. I was like, why? I don't understand. And after the class, I was waiting for my mom to pick me up. And this other girl was waiting with me too. And she was like, I know what she is. And I was like, what, what, what do you mean? She was like, she's Muslim and they're evil. They're the people who killed your dad. Oh. And I was like, I remember not even saying anything, actually. I don't think I even responded to that. I think I just took it in and I was like, I don't believe that. She's so nice. I love this. Like, I, you know, I, I just didn't, I, I always had this gut feeling that it was wrong. I, I always, I always did. But yeah, even within my family, there was a lot of anger. My brother and I don't have the same views uh, when it comes to that. He's very angry still about that. And I never really understood that just because I don't think, I don't know what it is. I, I don't know what it is. It just, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear those things at a young age and almost being led to believe like my brother, my brother was being told those things too. So it was like very ingrained in him and other 9-11 kids too, that, you know, they're the problem, but they're not the problem. (laughs) You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a cycle of hate that has continued to keep going. I, I just, yeah, all of that just makes me like feel sick a little bit, (laughs) to be honest. I get that. I mean, to have those kinds of issues layered on top of your experience and to have your loss be, you know, politicized or weaponized, like, that has to feel like a lot because none, none of this is anything you ever asked for. But, yeah, I mean, I've known 9-11 kids who have experienced Islamophobia, too. Actually, mm-hmm. I wanted to say that because there's this, there's one girl, my friend Sonia, who, who lost her dad, and her family is also from India. and she had an experience when she was younger where she was walking into school after 9-11 and this boy shut the door and didn't let her and her brother in. And she was like knocking like, oh, let us, let us go in school. And he's like, no, I don't let terrorists in. And this is a 9-11 kid. You know, this is somebody who lost their father too. So it's, yeah, I think all of that is um, disgusting (laughs) and sad. You were talking about your brother's anger. I, I get why people are angry. I get why all sorts of people who've suffered loss are angry. And I wish we had better systems to teach us where to put it. 
you know, to teach us like what the feelings are under the anger. Because generally anger is a mask for sadness. And I think I think we've been missing a big kind of mental health component when we're talking about loss in general and especially catastrophic loss for something like this. And I, I think that that's actually, you know, when I talk about or ask you about rather you deciding that you wanted to author your own story, like to really have control of your own narrative, that makes sense to me. That, that I see as, a, as an act of, you know, self-preservation and also um, self-declaration of you like really taking control of this, this space that you grew up in. You know, when I think about that kind of agency and and what it can mean, you know, to to tell your own story. I I know we can't tell everyone what it is yet. You know, we're we're in the, we're we're not quite there. But you're working on a documentary project, um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what the documentary is about and uh, and about how you came up with the idea. Um, so I actually came up with the idea uh, when I was 18. I was in high school, and I just got invited to go to Guantanamo Bay to testify against the five men who are being held there for being responsible for the attacks of 9-11, for their trials and the death the death penalty, actually. And I was like, whoa, that was a, that was a lot for me to take in. And I felt like oh. I, hadn't, I hadn't even met any other kids who lost parents in 9-11. So how am I going to stand up here and represent anyone when I only know like two girls from my you know middle school that I never really even talked to in depth about it with. Wow. So I went out and I met them as many as as many of them as I possibly could. There's 3,051 kids who lost a parent in 9/11, but I, I only managed to meet around 200. But it was a really just a crazy journey to be honest. I learned about my own story through them and. I got a lot of clarity on a lot of different things. Uh, one of them being that I don't want to go to Guantanamo Bay and I don't want to be a part of anything that has to kill anyone. I don't even think these five men are the problem. <laughs> um, so the documentary just follows that journey of like what's been going on for the past, you know, four years and where I'm kind of at now and, and also highlighting other kids and their stories and allowing them to share their story in their own way because they also never really had that opportunity either. Mm. Um, it's something that I'm still working on, but definitely taking it slow Yeah, uh, with, for sure. How, how did you guys begin to find each other? Uh, there's this organization called Tuesday's Children that was actually formed the day after 9-11. Mm. And I reached out to them and I asked them if I could just send them a video that they can send to the other kids. And they did. And then I got responses and then I went out and I went to go meet them. And, and what was that like? Did you have to schedule like an itinerary of plane tickets or did you run a car? Like what, <laughs> what did you do? So luckily, um, most of the people that responded lived in the tri-state area, which makes sense because their families worked in the Twin Towers. But mm. I did go to Texas and Florida and uh, Georgia and New York, that was really it. I mean, I imagine, you know, over 200 stories. That's a lot of space to hold for other people, a lot of learning for yourself. I feel like it would be a ridiculous question to ask you, like, what story sticks out the most? But have there been any 
like overarching themes or or lessons that you've taken from those 200 plus conversations? Yeah, I think the biggest one is uh, that all these kids that I met have chosen to do something with their lives to help other people as like their main priority. Mm. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I think the reason that that's a reality is because when you go through trauma as a kid and even as an adult, you gain this massive sense of empathy for other people and they, it becomes something that makes you be able to connect with others. So a lot of them have chosen to do something with their life that is to help other people. I think that's really beautiful. And I think those are the kinds of choices that always make me feel really hopeful when something is so sad that I can't imagine how we are all supposed to get over it. And then I see people doing something healing out of that sort of sadness. I go, oh, right, that's what we're supposed to do. Like help the helpers, right? Yeah. It's always a really special reminder. Did, did seeing that, you know, having all those conversations with other 9-11 kids and, and seeing what they were deciding to do to kind of transmute that legacy, is that what led you to start talking to people who've lost loved ones during other attacks? I mean, you, you've spoken to kids who survived the shooting at, Parkland, you've talked to people from Manchester and Orlando and Sandy Hook and Las Vegas, massively terrifying events. But I imagine it's, it must feel really healing. Like you must feel like you speak a language that nobody else speaks. It does. It does feel like that. I think the way that all of that happened was really natural. I mean, as we were filming, these things actually were happening, um, minus Orlando and Sandy Hook. Mm -hmm. But we just, I mean, and when I say we, other also kids who lost parents in 9-11 felt like it was something that we needed to do just because Mm. all these communities were going through public loss and grief Mm. on like a really grand scale, and which was something that we didn't really see besides ourselves in a Mm. long time. So so we were like, how, uh, how can we help with the knowledge that we have from the past 20 years to give to people who are just experiencing it now? Mm. And we just went to these places. So, I mean, looking back, I'm not exactly sure if that was the most healthy thing to do. I'm glad I did it. I have no regrets, obviously. But I think another thing I learned about that whole experience was that there's a lot of pressure after something you know, like happens in your community that's horrible and very public to immediately become an activist and mm-hmm. to immediately start advocating for things that are really massive, which is important. But also, I found it much more important to focus on your mental health in those yeah. stages rather than being thrown onto stage, being thrown onto literally a stage for everyone to see. So I'm not sure if that was the most healthy thing, but. I, I did create a lot of relationships that I still have um, that are really meaningful. Well, and I bet even just hearing you say that will help other people who've been through stuff like this to maybe be more patient with themselves. Because there is, there's so much pressure no matter what's happened to you. You know, if it's loss, if it's trauma, if it's assault, if it's a death of a family member, people are like, well, what are you going to, what are you going to do about it? 
What are you going to say about it? How are you going to? And it's like, maybe I just need to go to like therapy and figure it out for a beat. You know, maybe the, maybe the move is to process and to, and to sit and to learn how to be with your grief and, and, and to ask questions, you know, of your family and, and like have some healing. And I, I don't think we get encouraged to do that very often. So even you saying, I, I wouldn't change these meetings for the world. And P.S. I wish I'd had more time to yeah. heal. Like, I think that's really going to help a lot of people. So thank you for being honest about that. Yeah, no, for sure. I think something that not a lot of people like to talk about, but it's true. Mm-hmm. It was, it's a lot. After we were done filming, I was so depressed and like, <laughs> literally suicidal. I had to like go into hospital for a little while because just taking in all of these stories, like I'm not a trained professional. I don't know who I thought I was, <laughs> but yeah. going and speaking to all these people and taking in all of these stories is something that like a licensed therapist has a hard time doing. Yeah. So I think that was a big learning lesson for me as far mm-hmm. as like where I can, you know, give my energy and take in energy. Uh, yeah. It's really important to focus on. Is there something now, and you know, I feel like you're doing it in real time, you know, you're reflecting and talking about what was valuable and what you might do differently and, you know, protecting your energy and all these things. Is there is there something that for someone who's not as far into this journey as you are, that you might share, you know, as a word of advice? Or just a, hey, I learned this the hard way, so maybe you don't have to. Hmm. Um, I think it would just be to be gentle with yourself, like extremely gentle, and to have a lot of compassion for your own healing process. Things are definitely going to come up that you don't expect. Yeah. And um, it's just taking it day by day. Like, honestly, that is the biggest thing that I've learned I I always look at the future I'm like oh what if I'm doing this 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 or in the past maybe I said something wrong and I shouldn't have that no Mm. just yeah just take it day by day and be gentle Mm. with yourself is what I would say yeah it's interesting when you talk about the way you look at the future I think especially for creative people Mm -hmm. you know we we see things in images and and I I think about the future and it's like, then it's photographs, then it's a movie, then there's a soundtrack that like, it gets so emo. Um, do you think that that it's easy for you to do that, to like look forward in that way and to have to take a breath because of all the creative spaces that, that you're in? Because, you know, for people at home, you're a, you're a filmmaker, you make music, you love photography, you make so many things that do require vision for the future. Yeah, I think that's something I'm struggling with, to be honest. Mm. I get extremely anxious when I think about the future. Mm-hmm. So that's something I'm working on. I do too, <laughs> so, still, to by be the honest. Way. Okay, cool. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> okay. Um, at all. I, I think the, the future and wanting to, you know, quote unquote, figure it out, like that is anxiety inducing. Yeah. So please know that you're not like broken or missing something or not succeeding. You're just a human in a world that is really intense. Yeah. Oh, thank you. As we sit here today and we kind of like, we look at the future 
we think about what we want to change. We think about some of the things we've all, you know, done right. Do you see this legacy that you're a part of? Do you see the way it's impacted the place we're in today? I think about an anniversary like this when I think about hoping for hope. My hope is that it'll remind people to treat each other like human beings a little more, you know, to yeah. be a little more tender. But I don't know if that's actually the impact you would say 9-11's had on where we are today. Um, or perhaps, you know, what you think about the direction we're on because of it. You, you've got a more personal, obviously, connection to it than me, than me. So I feel like I just keep coming to you for, for the no, answers um, to my questions. <laughs> I do. I, I think that as the 20th anniversary does come, um, that, I don't know. I hope that the 9-11 kids being able to share their stories does humanize it because 9-11 has been a really, has been something that did divide the country and the world. So if there's anything that can bring it back to some sort of sense of unity, it's, it is just talking about the truth of, of it all and, the, and, and, and humanizing it again, I keep saying humanizing, but it, but I think, there's been a lot of desensitization. Desen- I don't know if I said that correctly, but yeah, we're all desensitized. Mm-hmm. And if we can humanize something like 9-11, then maybe there is room for growth there with unity, mm-hmm. you know, in our country and with the world. When you think about, you know, people who are encouraging us to grow, people that you learn from or or peers of yours that are making the kinds of you know positive impact with being activists or being volunteers or dedicating their lives to you know to other people are are there people who you'd want to mention who you want to tell our listeners to you know look out for or whose work to look up yeah um my friend brian cosgrove he's an artist and i think if you could look up his work think I would definitely point you in that direction he's in he talks a lot about public grief and and healing there and to be honest I don't think I I want to mention anybody without their permission (laughs) okay I don't know I I I don't want to like you know put them out there um without talking to them first to be honest I like that I like even asking for consent for an honor that's a that's a really nice thing to (laughs) offer to people that's cool yeah. And what about for you? I mean, I know I know you said you're at this moment where you're like, ah, I don't know what's going to stick. Also, please don't forget, because I forgot to say this the first time, you know, you're 22. Like, your prefrontal cortex isn't even done developing yet. It won't be <laughs> until you're 26. I look at some of the dumb shit I did when I was 22, and I was like, I wasn't even a human yet. <laughs> I'm like, so I'm not going to be embarrassed about that anymore. Um, I didn't have a whole brain. Like, I... I, I, it really makes me laugh because I did some really dumb shit when I was 22. So don't feel bad. Um, (laughs) but you know, it's good to remember, like you're, you're not supposed to have all the answers yet. You're really not. And, and I think if you, I think when you try things so that you can succeed, so that you can find the thing that you're the best at, it puts a lot of pressure on trying. Yeah. But if you, if you, really lean into trial and error 
like, yeah, I'm going to try this. I'm going to fail. I'm going to try that. I'm going to fail. That's kind of the point. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. like playing a game. It takes a while to learn. You, you, can, you can give yourself some of the play back in what you're mm-hmm. trying. So that's my, like, no, that's thanks. my mentor yeah. advice for you. Because um, <laughs> I want you, you to take thank the pleasure you. off yourself. And then thank I think you. when the pressure is off, are there goals, you know, are there things like as a filmmaker or a photographer or, you know, whatever hat you feel like you're wearing today, are there things you go, God, I would love to do that. I want to make a piece of work like that. I want to, I want to have an experience like that. Like what are your, what are your big kind of dreams? Hmm. Um, I'm really, really, really into music right now and Mm. kind of creating like instrumental tracks i think that really really inspires me just because i feel like i live my life as if it's like every second's like a movie like i'm always like thinking of and especially when i listen to instrumental music that is like so present in my mind i think that one thing is what i really want to work on and then also i really really like the like documentary hybrid space Mm -hmm. that makes any sense i i just made a friend recently her name's Rochelle. Uh, she worked on this movie called Skate Kitchen and they did like a documentary hybrid thing. And so she taught me all about that. And we've been watching a bunch of movies together. We just watched uh, American Honey. Have you seen that movie? No. Oh my gosh, please watch it. it Is it about bees? No. Okay. I was like, are you going to tell me you just watched a beekeeping movie? Because I'm going to lose my mind. No. It's kind of. <laughs> You're like, definitely not. No, but that sounds cool. Um, no. I became um, a farmer during COVID. What do you want from me? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I keep I bees now. That. I'm like a cra- I'm the crazy lady in the neighborhood in a bee suit. Everything's fine. You keep bees? Yeah. That's awesome. Do they like are you, I'm like actually terrified of bees. I, I really am. I so, have been since I was a baby. Same. And weirdly becoming a beekeeper, I'm like, oh, that was my own anxiety I was putting on the bees. They're great. Mm, like yeah. they're so great. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Talk about a life lesson. I'm like, ah, okay. Mm. (laughs) There was a message here. Got it. (laughs) That's really cool. I'm sorry. But anyway, American Honey, which is not about (laughs) honeybees. Continue. Tell me all about this movie. Um, It's it's definitely um, intense. So if you do watch it, be prepared for that. But I just think it's shot beautifully it's super real I can connect to like a lot of the characters I don't want to spoil really anything I think you should just watch it okay if you can do you know about this cool thing I want to pull up their Instagram so I can show you this is their handle sorry for everyone at home who can't see but it's just at XTR and they are this like really incredible they basically have become like a aggregator for documentaries because oh. all these filmmakers were like, hey, there's all these amazing docs that nobody ever sees. And this is mm. insane. It's like the genre of film we should be paying the most attention to right now. And so this company is just very, very cool. I feel like you'll I feel like you'll be into it and find a lot oh, of good. Thank you. Yeah, a lot of good movies there. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'm definitely gonna check that, check that out. So, I mean, maybe the answer to this question is everything. On some days it feels that way for me, but it is my favorite question. And I ask every single person who ever comes on the podcast, either in this moment today or or when you look at the things that make you feel excited, you know, what's coming in the future, what in your life 
feels like a work in progress to you right now? Probably mental health overarching. I think I really need to get back into therapy, which is something I'm working on. My therapist like low-key divorced me, but not like only because she had a kid and she doesn't do therapy anymore. Um, <laughs> but I think that that and boundaries, boundaries is like a really big thing for mm-hmm. me that I'm learning. Those are the two big work in progress things for me, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. I think they kind of go hand in hand though. Maybe that was not the yeah. best answer. I mean, same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I think if anything, I've learned that you know, mental health is, it's kind of like a ladder, you know, you, yeah. or like a video game, like you achieve a level and then you're like, oh, wow, there's another level and I have to master all these new tools. <laughs> but then you have a better toolkit, yeah. you know, and, and that, that kind of metaphor, thinking about it, like, oh, I'm building a toolkit that can be a lifelong thing. Yeah. Took a little of the pressure off for me of this idea of, well, when am I going to know enough that I'll just feel great all the time? Yeah, I was like, that oh, that's definitely won't not, be I don't think that's going to happen, actually. So I think, yeah. I think it has to be more about, you know, what am I building? What am I learning? How, how much more quickly can I be in touch with my feelings or, you know, be courageous enough to voice a problem and stop being a people pleaser or whatever? And, and I guess I offer all of that just to say, you know, I'm, I've got a lot of years on you, but I'm, I'm still on that journey, too, so you know yeah well I'll just well I'll just be on the road yeah yeah before we go you know is is there something that you would want to encourage people who want to process you know what this moment means this this big you know sad anniversary is there an article or or anything that you would say if you're going to look at one thing about 9-11 it should be this is there something you want to leave folks with as a as a pointer I think there's going to be a lot of different things that come out this year for the anniversary that I'm not really I'm not really sure what to expect when it comes to that mm-hmm. but I would just if you're gonna even look into it at all I would look for what the family members are saying and maybe watch the reading of the names and what they say when they stand up and they talk about their loved one mm. because I mean that's the most real thing you can watch that's beautiful I think um cultivating a practice of being a generous listener and really showing up for people to listen to their stories is yeah. is a gift so thanks for reminding all of us to do that yeah and not only the 9-11 family members actually everybody who even people who have experienced Islamophobia and, and, and the way you said your friend lost somebody because of 9-11 too. You know, mm-hmm. I all of those deeply personal stories and lives that people have lived after that, I think you should listen to that. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. 